looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What's happening, everybody? This is Wrong Real episode 512. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles who protect everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today, we're going to be talking about The Bastard Sons of Sam Peckinpah. Sam Peckinpah was an incredibly influential filmmaker, and he inspired a lot of filmmakers, and he changes the Western genre forever. Some of these movies perhaps are uh, greater or lesser than some of the others. But when it comes to Westerns, it's a lot like sex. Like, even bad sex, you're still having sex. So I've got the biggest Western fan on the planet back today, David Lambert, to discuss a wide range of movies from a wide range of directors from the early 70s up to the early 90s that are all inspired by the great Bloody Sam. So, Mr. Lambert, welcome back to Wrong Reel. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, catches up. I guess the last time we spoke, if you listen to the Wild Bunch episode we did a little while back, all hell had just broken loose. No, no one knew what was coming over the next couple of months. So how have you been getting by during the last few months? Yeah, you know, we're actually kind of uh, living in uh, Kaoma right now. We've got a plague. Uh, we've got uh, racial strife. <laughs> so Absolutely. Enzo G. Castellari predicted all of this back in the yeah. 70s. We, 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 did, we didn't listen. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've been doing well, um, you know, just, uh, uh, hanging in, you know, still, still working and all that. So, um, um, I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, trapped in my house. Unfortunately, I, I would rather be than having to go out to work, but you know, it is what it is. Um, one thing I do, uh, want to do real quick is, um, a good friend of mine, um, uh, Dan Van Heusen, uh, uh passed away. Uh, Spaghetti Western fans wa- um, will know him. Um, he's been in. He's, he was in a ton of films. He worked with. Um, uh, he's worked with Werner Herzog, uh, uh, Federico Fellini, um, uh, Tinto Brass. Um, he's worked with Lee Van Cleef and uh, William Holden, and um, he actually a film I wrote. Uh, man, oh, f- 10 years ago now, um, he he came out and uh, shot a big role. He was the main villain in it. He was great, and uh, we became friends. And so 
Um, and uh, I saw him a few times after that, and he would call me and everything. And uh, he was in his 70s, and I think that near the end, he started suffering from dementia. And anyway, he passed away from um, uh, COVID. So oh, wow. I want I want to give a shout out to Dan Van Heusen. Everyone should uh, look up his filmography. Um, he's uh, he was a great German actor uh, and in just a ton of great films. So um, I just wanted to get that out there because that was that was kind of a that was hard. That was a hard thing. So well, shout out to Dan Van Heusen. If you don't, if this won't sound totally crass or inappropriate, when he worked with Tinto Brass. Did he get to do anything particularly lurid or kinky? Because I've been actually watching a hell of a lot of Tinto Brass as of late because I find this movie to be completely delightful. Um, no. Well, he was one of the Nazis in um, Salon Kitty. Gotcha. Uh, um, he has a very uh, distinctive look. Uh, his face is, is just you'll you'll know him when you see him. But um, he was also in um, uh, the movie Doc, which uh, we we spoke about in okay. the previous episode, the Wyatt Earp episode. He was one of the Clanton brothers. Um, but he's just been he's just worked with everyone, and and uh, he was uh, just a really uh, interesting, uh, strange dude, <laughs> but in the best. But in the best way. Those so, are my favorite kind of people. Yeah. So, all yeah. right. Well, I, I am sorry to hear about the loss of your friend. And, yeah, I'm looking at his IMDb right now. An enormous career with 145 film credits. And it sounds like uh, he definitely made his mark with all these different collaborators that he worked with. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he, he's, he's, he's one of those guys that uh, when, when you see him, you'll, you'll know him. You, he, you know, he was in – he was in – just everything. So he almost looks a little bit like Clarence Boddicker in RoboCop, or at least this one picture on his IMDb page does. But I don't know if that's yeah, what he looks yeah. Like. <laughs> he has that look for sure. Gotcha. Well, yeah, Salon Kitty. I bought, I rented that DVD in the early two thousands, and it is kinky as shit. Yeah, Teresa Ann Savoy, who also was in Caligula. And uh, Paola Senatore, who's in a ton of erotic films in the seventies. But yeah, for people who want to watch. Tinto Brass movies. There's a bunch that you could go with. Uh, the one that I, I saw recently that I really enjoyed, what it was called? Oh, shit. Hang on. It's going to drive me crazy if I can't remember this. I think it's called like Cherry or Kinky or what the fuck was this movie called? I've watched like it has one of the best opening credit sequences ever conceived by a human being. Hang on. I'm opening up right now. Oh, Cheeky. Cheeky from 2000. So just watch the opening credit sequence and you'll get an idea of what I'm talking about, but it's positively delightful. And another one I really enjoyed recently was called P.O. Box Tinto Brass from 1995, where it's basically him hanging out in an office where people are writing in these letters and he'll read the letters and it's like these sexual encounters and experiences. And then he'll create a little vignette or a short film bringing that letter to life. Absolutely incredible. There's one scene with a uh, an orgy that is particularly good that uh, I strongly recommend. So yeah, P.O. Box Tinto Brass, well worth hunting down. Yeah, at, at one point uh, he was he was just sitting. He wasn't filming at the time, and he wasn't talking to anyone. And my cousin was nearby, and he he just uh, randomly said, you know, the uh, uh, number is four hundred and seventy three. And it was just like what? Like my cousin was like, what? What are you talk? What are you? What are you talking about? It's like, and he's like, that is how many women I've slept with. You know, <laughs> <laughs> just random, 
no, no, the, the, that was the beginning and end of the conversation. Just <laughs> he just threw that out there. So he it's was funny. A, Some people do keep track. Guy. I remember I worked for a person one time. He was like, "For me, it's a dollar eighty. I was like, "I mean, once you get to a certain number, who's keeping track? Like, and, and why are you volunteering this?" So yeah, I do not know what my number is, but it is enough where I am proud of my achievements on that front. But yeah, I have no clue how experienced I am. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, so anyway, I, I wanted to throw that out there. He, he was, he was a great guy, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, very generous. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and just a really great actor. And, uh, so, um, so yeah, I, I think people should, uh, uh, look up his filmography. Very cool. Well, let's switch gears. We have talked quite a bit about Peckinpah in the past on this. I mean, on our Billy the Kid episode, we talked about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid on our, I guess it was like the final movies by Western Icon episodes. We talked about Ride the High Country, and then most recently we talked about The Wild Bunch, and we went absolutely berserk. But obviously, when it comes to the Western genre, few filmmakers have made as big a mark as Sam Peckinpah. You and I are both rabid fans, and he changed the genre. Some would say that he kind of carved the gravestone and almost wrapped it up prematurely, but uh, anytime you have a successful film... You're going to spawn imitation. I mean, people love to make fun of the uh, Pulp Fiction knockoffs or the Tarantino knockoffs of the 1990s where suddenly everybody wanted to write hip movies about gangsters talking about cheeseburgers and things like that. And a similar kind of thing happens with Peckinpah where these slow motion shootouts started to become much more popular. And I think with a lot of these movies, you'll see a situation where you get a lot of the savagery but none of the poetry or you get a lot of the action and the choreography and the technique but you don't necessarily have the, the soul of an artist at play. But these movies are incredibly watchable. And for Western buffs, all these movies are worth watching, but we can discuss which ones are our particular faves. But you came up with a long list of wild movies from, like I said, from the early 70s through the early 90s. So you tell me, where would you like to start? Uh, well, well, one thing that we're, that we're doing is just focusing on um, the Westerns. Um, that very specifically uh, went beyond just uh, inspiration because the thing is, after the Wild Bunch, uh, every Western that came out um, was changed by it. There was there was honestly no way to not take into account uh, what the Wild Bunch had done, and and of course Westerns were moving in that direction. Um, already with the spaghetti westerns with Leone and, uh, you know, uh, darker, more downbeat um, films like Ombre and stuff like that, that, uh, you know, predated um, the Wild Bunch. So you could see that's where the genre was going, but there was no way to do anything um, that was not affected by um, the Wild Bunch in, in the genre. Uh, so... Um, uh, I'm trying to focus on just the westerns. Clearly, um, Peck and Paw changed the way just action scenes were were shot and cut, um, and you know, uh, so you you have you've got films the films of Walter Hill, John Woo, um, you know, uh, Michael Mann. You've got all this stuff is changed by. Um, by uh, Peckinpah's influence, so you you so you know I'm trying to keep it um, just uh, the more more clear, the more obvious ones, I, I guess I'd say. 
and you know you uh, there are films like um, the Hitchhike which is uh, not a western but it's got a Franco Nero and David Hess and it's a little bit like uh, a duel it's a little bit like a uh, little bit of last house on the left there but it's also just like a clear riff on the themes of straw dogs you know um, and then you've got uh, uh, biker movies like um, the Northville Cemetery Massacre which was directed by the guy who made Harry and the Hendersons, but it's it's like basically like Easy Rider, but then it has a huge peck and paw slow motion gigantic squib bloodbath at the end, and it's not a very <laughs> good movie, but you could see you know um, you could see his influence just changing uh, any kind of tough guy manly cinema. So, but I think the first one that we probably would want to get into is uh, um, the Hunting Party. Hunting equipment. Your gun has eight rings. Seven hundred dollars a piece. It's a present for you boys. One for each of you. I thought it would add a little something to the hunting. And the most dangerous game of all, man. It stars uh, Oliver Reed, Candace Bergen, and Gene Hackman, and um, it, it came out in 1971, um, and it was uh, part of a interesting grouping of uh, westerns at the time that were uh, either American or 
British uh, American co-productions um, that were shot in Spain, which was always confusing to me. <laughs> like the good, the bad, and the ugly like, was shot there. I mean, it's it's got the great landscapes, and they probably had it's probably a little less expensive than the American West, but yeah, I mean, if it's good enough for Leone, it's good enough for just about anybody. Well, uh, well, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I understand why the spaghetti westerns shot in Spain, um, but if it's an American production, it just seems so funny to <laughs> travel over <laughs> take, there. Yeah, take American uh, actors, directors, crew, and all that. You know, and, and sometimes uh, it's just a matter of like tax incentives and things like that, where suddenly you just the the price is right, and a, and a and a production company has no choice but to go to these places that are the most advantageous. Yeah, yeah, but it's just it's funny. You you know, you watch something like. Uh, um, uh, Chato's Land with uh, Charles Bronson and Jack Palance, and uh, directed by Michael Winner, and and uh, you know they're they're on this the the in the chalky white sands of um, Spain, and they're putting these fake uh, saguaro cactuses <laughs> to make it look like it's Arizona, and you can just see the same like three or four cactuses that they're, gotcha. that they're like putting in the background and they're like, and they're like uh, kind of like flopping with the wind and, and shit. So <laughs> it, it's, it's just funny. I mean, uh, a European production, I guess makes sense, but it, it, it never really, it's like if you're in America and you're about the American West, I don't, you know, sometimes they would even go out to Israel and stuff to shoot some, some later latter day spaghetti Western shot over there. It's just uh I don't know. It's never quite right. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so The Hunting Party is um, uh, directed by uh, uh, Don Medford, who was mostly a, a television I mean, director. He, I looked him up, and it's incredible to me just how many shows he worked on. It was like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Rifleman, Twilight Zone, The Untouchables, The Man from Uncle, pretty much any iconic major show from that era that you could think of every single show that i that i've even heard of from that period he seems to have played a hand in at least doing a couple episodes yeah yeah so uh, so he he's a, he's a straight up um uh a tv guy and um uh so he um the, so they're they're shooting this film in in spain and uh, it's it's written by um uh gilbert uh ralston uh who was a british writer and he was actually the creator of uh, the TV show The Wild Wild West, and he wrote like Willard and Ben and uh, a few other things. And um, and uh, this, uh, well, what a lot of people don't know about this film is that it's um, very loosely based on um, an episode of um, uh, The Big Valley uh, with um, uh, Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, called the Teacher of Outlaws, uh, which has like Timothy Carey in it, and um, and uh, and basically the plot is um, an outlaw kidnaps a school teacher so that she can teach him how to read. Yep. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and Alva Reed doing kind of an atrocious American accent, which I know he did not enjoy doing at all. But Alva Reed is just one of my all-time favorite performers. He's just such a human dynamo that I will watch him do anything. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he. And this um, is the Oliver Reed, well, the same year that the fucking Devils comes out. This is Oliver Reed, and he's like, you know, in his absolute virile prime. Yeah, yeah, and um, I'll get into him because I love Oliver Reed, but uh, 
there's something off about him in, in this film. But basically, um, so in this one, um, Gene Hackman uh, is Candace Bergen's husband. And he goes, uh, he, he was going to go on a, a hunting trip with these high-powered rifles with, it, with, his, uh, with his rich friends. And um, once his wife is kidnapped, he uh, takes them and they basically go hunting Oliver Reed and his gang with high-powered rifles. Um, and uh, it turns out he's this, you know, uh, a sadistic bastard. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I mean, you're putting it very mildly. I love Gene Hackman. He's one of the all-time great movie icons, but I couldn't believe just how fucking depraved his character was in this movie. I mean, I have zero hesitation or, uh, I guess, reluctance to watch really dark, sadistic films. But as I was watching this, I was thinking, wow, like this one's really uh, putting my interest in this kind of cruelty to, to the test. Well, it's, it's so... Um funny to me because you know when you when you watch like stuff about the production of like um the french connection and stuff they they make a big deal about like how gene hackman couldn't get in the the head of the character because he was a violent guy or this or that and it's like what this the the you know gene hackman who made the hunting party you know which is like one of the most sadistic westerns ever made i would say absolutely Uh, uh, so it's just the, that that's always confused me. But of course, I I believe that Hackman and Candace Bergen disavowed the film later. I think Oliver Reed is the only one who um, did not, you know, disown it. Oh, I mean, for uh, Oliver Reed, this is just Friday night. I mean, he was not afraid <laughs> to tie one on, walk up an alleyway and usually had like Richard Harris or Peter O'Toole at his side and just get in a fight <laughs> with just strangers in the dark with who were wielding blades. Or at least that was his fantasy. That's what he. That's how he would like to live his nights. Well, Mitchell Ryan, who plays like, um, you know, his like uh, close friend in the gang, you know, kind of the, kind of uh, the Dutch to his Pike Bishop. Um, um, I guess they were drinking buddies, and Mitchell Ryan, I guess, was so was so drunk that he was like basically non-functioning, and he got fired off the film. And I think they shot for like another week. And Oliver Reed wanted his drinking buddy back, so Mitchell Ryan <laughs> came back and was and rehired. People will know Mitchell Ryan as Danny Glover's uh, Vietnam buddy in Lethal Weapon, whose daughter is the one that jumps out of the building at the beginning. And anyway, so for any Lethal Weapon fans out there, he's the guy who gets like taken out by Mr. Joshua from the helicopter. Anyway, badass scene from Lethal Weapon. Yeah. So. Um... So anyway, yeah. So so the 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 film because the the writer and producers had worked on that episode of the Big Valley, and so it really does find its origins there. Although it's never been officially um, said that claimed, but um, the 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 television episode was directed by uh, Michael Ritchie, and uh, who would then uh, later do a uh, prime cut with Gene Hackman. Yeah, and like uh, the Bad News Bears and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and, I did a big uh, Michael Ritchie episode with Kevin Marr on the podcast maybe two years ago. I can't quite remember. Anyway, we, we did the deep dive on his career. Well, when I watched, when I watched this film, and uh, in my mind I go, man, I wish someone like Michael Ritchie was uh, at the helm of it. Someone with a little bit more of a sense of humor who – could kind of revel in 
the absurdity and the nastiness, um, something tonally, I think, closer to something like Prime Cut would have worked really good. Um, yeah, this was, you eat this was, guts. I like them. <laughs> yeah, and so um, this is a movie that I think when I when I first saw it, I was uh, getting trying to get into very peck and polish westerns, real bloody, dark violent stuff and so i think when i first saw it i i enjoyed it i i loved the violence and everything and every subsequent watch i've liked it less and less it's it, a bit it, of a slog at one point i was saying to myself this is feeling really long and right at that point there's this great shootout where a bunch of people are bathing in a river and it seems like throughout this movie Anytime it starts to slow down, they just will stage an ambush where Gene Hackman and his buddies from a ridge like four miles away will use these high-powered rifles with these crazy scopes to just start laying waste to Oliver Reed and his buddies. And I just want to say to these guys, like, learn your lesson. When you hang out in the open, these guys with high-powered rifles are going to shoot the fucking shit out of you. But it's like one scene after another where they're just hanging out and suddenly they just start getting mowed down with like, you know, stomachs exploding and limbs flying off. And I just, I just couldn't believe how many times they allowed themselves to get kind of caught in the open like that. Yeah, yeah. Like I, it, I, one point it, I checked on the time, the running time of the film and I thought it, I was like, all right, there's probably like five minutes left in this movie. And I saw that I had nearly 40 and I thought to myself, all right, that's that's not a good sign, and a running time of an hour and fifty one minutes. Well, yeah, it is like uh, I think there's like an hour passes or something before. I don't know if it's an hour. I mean, it's like it's deep into the movie before anyone even starts shooting. So, and and the, I guess the the problems that that I have with it um, are it's very simplistic, um, but it's trying to. Uh, it, it, it's 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 pretentious, I think, um, in a way because it's like I think it's the movie that people imagine in their mind. The people that dislike Peck and Paul movies, I think this is this is the this is the film that uh, I I think that this is what people imagine. The people that dislike Peck and Paul, it's it's empty nihilism. Um, it, 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 it's, it's like, it's performative nihilism, I think. And a lot of these, um, Un, not unearned nihilism. Do that. Yeah. I mean, it's like if Sam Peckinpah is, um, you know, uh, Goya, then a lot of these nihilistic Peckinpah riffs are the, you know, cover artists of, uh, cannibal corpse albums. You know, <laughs> it's like there, there's just, there's nothing, <laughs> There's, there's really not much there. But it's a weird thing where, like, I love the premise and I love the cast and I enjoy the violence. It just shows how the devil truly is in the details when it comes down to finding that poetry between the lines or finding that right script or giving it the right music or the right look. And it just, it's, if you zig instead of zag, your film can fly off the rails. Where, as I was watching, I was thinking, all right, this is totally watchable for diehard Western fans, especially Western fans who like the going to the dark side. But if someone were to say, hey, let's get together and watch The Hunting Party, be like, ugh, I can think of a hundred other Westerns that I'd rather watch with my, with my friends in The Hunting Party. Yeah, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's actually similar in a way to uh, a movie that we'll be talking about later with The Last Hard Men. And they're all kind of like... Um, 
like a real nasty version of like Big Jake or something. <laughs> you know, that same sort of Western kidnapping plot. But also like in the early 70s, I feel like after decades of pretty hardcore censorship when it came to sex and violence, you can. De- I feel like 1971 was almost the peak where finally all this – all these yearnings have been building up like water behind a dam. And when the dam finally broke, you got the most depraved horror films and action films and sex films. And we've never really gone back to those excesses of that period. Yeah, it's almost like filmmakers needed to get all this out of their system because they'd been deprived of the opportunity to make these kinds of stories for so long. Yeah, and uh, kind of like what I said about Dirty Little Billy because it's like the dirtiest yeah. Looking, yeah. Uh, looking Western um, uh, ever. And so this one, I think maybe could be worth a watch to see how uh, like just low and nihilistic a Western can get alongside maybe something like Cutthroat's Nine. Um, but uh, yeah, also, you know, you're you're right in that the details are just off like um you know, the with the the Spanish locations, they don't do anything really good. The, you know, the costumes are are weird, and I, you know, I complain about uh, costumes, but but it's like, you know, I I love Oliver Reed, but um, they have this weird little cowboy hat on him with like a stampede string tight on his head, and you know, Oliver Reed has got a big, he's he's got kind of a pumpkin head and big noggin. He, around with this little cowboy hat on he looks like a little kid and his and his accent is weird they and the weird just, silly I mean, little scenes that tonally feel out of place but the scene when they're eating the peaches i was thinking to myself are, are y'all just not quite sure what story you're going for what tone you're going for but that that peach eating scene felt um really i guess it seemed to clash with the rest of the film yeah and the and and the music is like this weird banjo music and and uh, it's it's like the only real moment of humor or levity, but it's just so off in in the film. Whereas and, in the Wild Bunch, the humor is so earned and so genuine and so contagious. You just want to cackle wildly right alongside all the members of the Wild Bunch. Yeah, and uh, so it, it's it's just I don't it, it's just off. Um, the the music was by um, Riz. Ortolani, who had done stuff for Spaghetti Westerns, and there's definitely a Spaghetti Western influence in this beyond just uh, the, the Peckinpah influence, but just on an aesthetic level, it it, it, it doesn't it doesn't look good. Um, the you know it's got weird stuff like the part where they're on on this train, the train with a with a brothel in it, um, which is an interesting idea, um, and it's just real bad, like you know optical effect you know and it's just like stuff like that where you know it just doesn't even on an aesthetic level work outside of the the scenes of of the slow motion slaughter um those are are done actually really well um yeah on a technical level they look i mean they're incredibly visceral yeah and um so the the editor was was tom rolf i don't know if i got when i got cut off um uh, but he he had done work on Taxi Driver. Nice. He did work on uh, Michael Mann's Heat. He did work on Heaven's Gate and stuff. So so he knows what he's doing. And the actual effects are done well. There are guys without shirts on getting squibbed up, and that's not that's not easy to do, um, especially in you know 1971 when it was made. So um, but uh, the staging of the scenes are are off. 
you have um, like you like you were saying, they're 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 out in the open getting shot up, and it's weird because none of the bad guys seem to have rifles. Like <laughs> you know, you think you'd have a a rifle on your on your saddle, you know, like yeah, like the one time Oliver Reed counterattacks, he has to like double back. And ride up to basically like to point blank range where he starts fighting back. And I was thinking, like, all right, finally, you're not just allowing yourself to be chipped away at and destroyed from a distance. But he quite literally has to do like a suicidal cavalry charge just to get some licks in. Yeah, and, and uh, his friend gets shot in the head while he's taking a shit, which is great. You know, I hadn't seen anything like that in a Western <laughs> at that point. But then he's there shooting. He's out and it runs out in the open. Uh, shooting pistols and it's like what what are you doing there's no it just it, it's just it's just so so silly so um you know it's it's got it's got some good character actors and like i said i love oliver reed but i think he's 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 miscast in this one uh i think this is around the same year that he did sitting target which is a great fucking movie if you've ever seen it i've great not even heard of it what's sitting target uh, he's like the, uh, this criminal. It's not a. It's not a western. Uh, he's a criminal, and, and he um, he finds out that his. Uh, I haven't seen it in twenty years, but he finds out that I think that his wife has left him or is cheating on him while he's in jail, and so he like breaks out of jail. It's like this crazy uh, uh, jailbreak to go kill her. <laughs> and I mean, uh, I don't watch anything with Oliver Reed. Whether you're talking about Curse of the Werewolf or friggin' The Brood. Or even little things like in like Gladiator, the film where he died shooting it. He's just one of the most delightful actors who ever walked or crawled. And I just love like his his physical brawn and his his pat or things like um like Tommy, like, you know the Ken Russell film. I just I I don't think I've ever seen a bad Alva Reed. Even when he's even when the movie's off, he's still fascinating to watch. Well, yeah, and he's he's like this tough guy who could kind of have a certain amount of sensitivity to him but in this film it just doesn't work and and sometimes his like dramatic like like flair just comes off as off so like you know when his gang is uh turning against him and mitchell ryan like um uh holds a shotgun on them to you know you know basically to back him up and then he walks over and takes the shotgun and punches him in the face and you're like what what is this? Like I don't even understand what why did he do that? Why is he punching the guy that's protecting him? There's just weird things in the movie that don't they don't really make sense. Um so yeah, it's um yeah, so much of it doesn't work, but well, it's funny uh, how you I, think of Candace Bergen as being this like sweet, wholesome all-American actress, but between this and what was the western she made the year before that was also really depraved? Um, Soldier Blue, yeah. But yeah. she she made and she also in, that, in the same year did uh, Carnal Knowledge. I'm like, all right, why is Candace Bergen doing these dark, savage, merciless movies? When you think of her as like put her in Little House on the Prairie or something like innocent and sweet and wholesome, but something in her she must have been drawn to these these dark so- stories about the, the 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 savage side of human beings. Yeah, and and also. Um... Um, what's interesting too is that it it shares a little bit of some similarity with um, Straw Dogs even though this came out like a few months earlier than Straw Dogs but it it has a weird sort of ambiguous rape scene and you're you're kind of like 
well, it's not even really ambiguous, but then she falls for Oliver Reed after he rapes her. And you're what it's like, maybe it's Stockholm syndrome because, you know, and her husband is so bad and sadistic. Yeah. I mean, by the end of the movie, she's totally in love with Oliver Reed and following him out to like to die by his side in the fucking desert. <clears throat> so I think Stockholm syndrome is the, the perfect way to describe it. But it doesn't explore that. It's just suddenly it's it like, just happens. Yeah. It's, it's un basically, unearned. Well, it's like, yeah, Oliver Reed's guys want to rape her, and he protects. He's just slightly nicer than them. Yeah, El, your, your, your buddy L.Q. Jones, who accused you of having bad taste in movies, he's like the first one. He, <laughs> he keeps coming after her and keeps grabbing at her. And I love how Oliver Reed rides by and just yanks him out of the buggy with his pants half, halfway down. So, yeah, I mean, I laughed at that, at that particular moment just because it was funny seeing L.Q. Jones in that compromising position. Yeah, yeah, and uh, – and, uh, you know, and uh, the movie, I guess, you know, I guess it establishes early on in, in a really weird, crass uh, way of like cross cutting. But but in, but it does, it's not done very well. But it's like uh, the movie basically opens with like her getting like forcibly. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know if he's he's raping her or it's just or he's or he's just having rough sex with her. Gene Hackman. Her husband, and it's intercut with a cow actually being like gutted. Yeah, that scene got <laughs> removed from the UK prints of the film. But yeah, you're cross cutting back and forth between a cow being skinned and gutted and bleeding all over the place, and it's definitely it gets your attention very quickly. And then yeah, Candace Bergen's being kind of groped slash just yeah kind of manhandled by her her rough and depraved husband. Yeah, so Gene Hackman's character is. Very few redeeming qualities apart from his marksmanship in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he's burning he's burning whores with the cigars and stuff. And yeah, I, so he, I, I turned him against him in, in that scene because that girl is uh, this insanely hot Asian prostitute who's ready to get it on with him. And yeah, the, the only thing Gene Hackman can do is think, to think, think to do with her is torture her. So yeah, he definitely earned me as an enemy with that particular scene. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, and uh, you know, a spoiler for the ending, it has one of the darkest endings of of any Western. I mean, um, you know, the great silence is kind of the one that gets picked out as like, Ooh, the darkest ending in a Western. Um, but fuck man, like Oliver Reed gets killed. Gene Hackman shoots his wife in the crotch yeah, and then dies in the desert. And, yeah. and <laughs> so, all three of them are just dead together. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's bleak and it's grim, but I think as a curiosity, for people who like to test their limits or people who just love Westerns, I mean, my, my, my stepdad was like this. He just called them cowboy movies in any Western, whether it was a TV show, movie, made for TV, you know, made for 70 millimeter, didn't matter. He just liked to be <laughs> in that world like, Slim, there's a cowboy movie on, like, come join me. And I was like, I mean, are you just going to watch any cowboy movie? And the answer was Yes, if they had guns and cowboy hats, he he was in. So he probably would have sat back and watched the hunting party and been just fine. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think if somebody came in and did an edit, uh, maybe cut out like forty-five minutes. Um, it's long. You'd probably have a tight, nasty little uh, western. But yeah, it it takes way too long to get where it's going. And yeah. and like I said, it it has no sense of humor. Um, and I think that. Someone like Michael Ritchie would have injected that, yeah. Oh, Michael Ritchie is hysterical. I mean, Bad News Bears is one of the funniest films of the 1970s by far. 
Well, let's yeah. talk about another flick from this year that you mentioned. And you've been trying to get me to watch this final scene for years at this point. I finally did watch it. I have not seen the entire film, but you've got Machismo, 40 Graves for 40 Guns, a.k.a. Revenge of the Wild Bunch from 1971. <clears throat> and this is all about that final shootout. So obviously this is not one of the ones you picked for the day, but do you have any notes or thoughts on this movie that very clearly – is trying to do like an unofficial sequel to the the film that kind of got this craze up and running. Uh, well, well, it was directed by Paul Hunt, and uh, who was uh, who had uh, worked with uh, Orson Welles, um, and um, he did two westerns in the in the seventies that were clear um, uh, riffs on on Peck and Paw. So this one, uh, which is called uh, Revenge of the Wild Bunch. Uh, and also called Machismo, 40 Graves for 40 Guns. And he did another one uh, a few years later called uh, The Great Gun Down. <laughs> Not the big gun down. Yeah, the, the big gun down is the shit. That's a really good spaghetti western with, I yeah. mean, one of the coolest scores in the history of the western genre. But that came out, what, like 67 or 68? But I caught that one in the theater at the, the film forum in New York with my stepdad my little brother, and we, we had a fine time. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um but both both of those these films are are really bad, um, really really hard to watch. Uh, Machismo is one of the most boring westerns I've ever seen. Very incompetent. Um, it's it's a movie that at one point it's about like uh, they steal these guys steal a golden cross from something, and I don't exactly even remember what happens. But it, it sort of becomes a thing where these uh, a Mexican it's sort of an inverse of the magnificent seven where these mexican gunfighters come to protect uh, a town full of white white people um and uh but there's a scene in the movie where there's an old mexican um priest or something and he's like sort of supposed to deliver exposition and he starts talking and then out of nowhere a voiceover comes in and says the old Mexican priest told them of the cross. You know, there's no voiceover in the rest of the movie. I don't know if they just shot the scene. <laughs> it and, like they're editing the- it. Like, we need a little bit of exposition. What can we do? Fuck it. Just throw in some random <laughs> voiceover narration. Well, well, it's not even just random voiceover narration. It's literally shots of the character talking and then the voiceover explaining what he's saying. Because it's like um, it's like the audio got fucked up or something. <laughs> I don't know, and so it's the one of the one of the weirdest pieces of voiceover I've ever seen in a movie. But anyway, horrible movie. But it ends with just this insane um, gunfight, and uh, Paul Hunt later on worked um, uh, as a camera operator, or or he worked in some kind of technical department um, in, on the Long Riders. And so the the big gunfight at the end of this is clearly a riff on the opening of the Wild Bunch, um, except they've got a cannon and they've got dynamite and, you know, all this other stuff. It almost felt like a Monty Python parody. And because I was watching it totally out of context from the rest of the film, I had no emotional investment in any of the characters. I didn't know who anybody was. So I found it, it became strangely hysterical just watching this town full of total strangers just completely, utterly laying waste to each other and then at the very end you see all the dead bodies like all right just throw them in a ditch to rot so i thought it was actually <laughs> like like the funniest 10 minutes of my life watching this thing t- taken totally in isolation it's yeah i mean i love this gunfight it is ins- it is hilarious 
Um, what's amazing about it is that he gets like the, I mean, outside of a few parts, but he gets the rhythms correct. I think like the, the way Peckinpah would use the slow motion, not as a thing to just, uh, you draw attention to itself, but it's actually there to complement this, the footage that's shot in regular time to make that stuff look faster and more intense, which is what people I think don't get when they do their Peckinpah riffs because the slow motion becomes the thing that you're supposed to go, that's the coolest thing, but he's using it complimentary. And I think that he, Paul Hunt does that in, in this gunfight, but what he doesn't get right is the continuity makes no sense. So he'll have a guy shooting a pistol and then the street will explode because it's clearly supposed to be someone shooting a cannon or throwing dynamite. And he's cutting them together to where what you're seeing in one part, you know, the cause and effect are two unrelated things. So that's what's that's what kind of makes it funny, too. So um, um, but the rhythms are there. But the other reason that I kind of really I wanted you to watch it is because since he worked on the long riders, you can really, in my opinion, see certain shots, certain things that are in the long riders that are almost identical um it's just this is way more insane so i don't know if he ever showed this to walter hill when he was working on the long riders or or what if it's just coincidence but i think uh i think people should watch it and maybe decide for themselves but there are, there are <laughs> absolutely that, that look real close so i think everyone should watch it it's it's it is hilarious it is it, it, it feels like a parody of, of a peck and paw gunfight, <laughs> but in the most awesome way possible. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, let's move on to one of the best movies that you cooked up for this list. And it's a movie that I think is well worth hunting down. It is, is it as good as Peckinpah? No. Is it as good as, you know, Anthony Mann Westerns? Or is it as good as Bud Bedecker Westerns? No. But this is a movie by Dick Richards, who did Farewell, My Lovely, which is a really dynamite Philip Marlowe movie from the 70s. But this came out a couple years earlier, but we got The Culpepper Cattle Company from 1972, which I saw for the first time. And I think this one's well worth hunting down for Western fans, and they, there's a good chance they might not have even heard of it. So lay it on us. What is the uh, what is the premise of this particular flick? I'll always remember the summer of 1866. That was the most important year of my life. That year I got my first meal job, and I couldn't wait to break loose. We're with you, Mr. Culpepper. Why? Because I want to be a cowboy. Well, that's one hell of an ambition, boy. I've never been up north before. Where do we get to the desert? I met a lot of new folks that summer, and it changed my whole way of thinking. That's the old lady. The boys used to say you could get better grub in jail. How do you know what to put in there? I don't. There's Luke, Russ, Missoula, and Dixie Brick. Russ was kind of crazy. Don't stand behind me, kid. The Canyon Gang. One thing I learned from them, you can't trust anybody. Mr. Culpepper, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean nothing. 
You just cost me a good man, boy. Just drop your gun belts on the floor. Because all I gotta do is spit. Mr. Thornton Pierce. He owned all the land between here and Fort Lewis. Now get your horses and walk them out of town. Skit, boy! And you too, brother! Brother Nathaniel. He didn't fight. Get off my land! But he wouldn't run. God's land. My land! God's land. You're a squatter. Around here we shoot squatters. These people, they need some kind of help. Well, in that case, I guess we have no choice. Was killing. I guess you can learn a lot on a cattle drive if you live that long. <laughs> The kid from the summer of 42 grows up fast on the great cattle drive of 1866. Yeah! Uh, so the premise is um, there is a kid who really wants to be a cowboy uh well teenager and uh so he joins up with on a cattle drive and it gets made uh, to be their uh quote little mary which is the assistant to the cook which sounds um, super rapey <laughs> <laughs> like it's so <laughs> one boy's like I love how, like the uh the coach the, whoever's driving the wagons like i wish you was a girl or so, or so he says something yeah. really creepy <laughs> yes Yes. Uh, so, uh, and then it's basically just kind of a, a downbeat sort of uh, uh, coming of age western where he's just trying to, trying to, uh, you know, uh, he he's just trying to make it as a cowboy, uh, and no one's really offering their assistance. So it's basically just one fuck up after another uh, on on a cattle drive. Um, and uh, yeah, Dick Richards. This, this is his first film. He he worked in advertising um, alongside um, uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, and so this is actually Jerry Bruckheimer's first. Uh, yeah, I saw that. Associate producers. His first producer credit. Yeah, so they'd come up in advertising together, I believe, and I think um, in the '60s, in uh, he uh, Dick Richards was working on a commercial uh, in San Antonio, Texas, and. Um, he had, there was all these old timers, all these alcoholic old timers, and there was a guy in his seventies or eighties who uh, told him that uh, uh, you know, as a as a young man, he was the quote little Mary on a cattle drive, and Dick Richards was like, "Well, that's interesting," and so he kind of <laughs> it's like, playing. "Let me let me hear more." <laughs> yeah, and like, what uh, does that mean? <laughs> and yeah, so the, and then he so he came up with this uh, with this script. And uh, it got some kind of like screenwriter's annual story award by the the Writers Guild of America, and so it, uh, um, you know, got legs. And uh, he and so yeah, he ended up making the film. Um, 
And uh, I get, you know, I guess later on it, it, it won a few awards at the San Sebastian Film Festival, which I have no idea what that is, but I guess uh, the awards were given to him by um, Howard Hawks. Nice. So he got to, uh, And this um, book's got a little Howard Hawks, Howard Hawks homage with the, uh, the scene that's very reminiscent of Red River as the cattle drive begins and they depart. You can tell they, somebody on this set really loved Red River. Yes, for, yeah, definitely. And uh, that's what Hawks had told him because he, he told Hawks, like, uh, yeah, I, you know, I paid homage to you in this film, and and Hawk said, yeah, but you did something that that I never that I didn't do, uh, which is you know you you uh, portrayed the the West as it really was. Now I don't. Yeah, no one's going to want to be a cowboy after watching this. Like even in the movie, <laughs> they're like, why do you want to be a cowboy? Being a cowboy back then, it was almost like. It's a job that you do when you can't get any other job. But I, I did like how this movie strips away the romanticism of the American West and the cowboy because it's like nobody wants to be like a garbage man, but it is a good it's, – it's a living if, if, if you need it. Yes. And so where, where I take issue with, with the film is honestly um, the more overt Peckinpah elements – I think that trying to do a Peck and Paul riff, especially in the end, and we'll jump into that maybe a little bit more later, but um, I think that's what that's what's off about the movie because just being sort of a low key, downbeat, more realistic uh, view of the West was I I honestly feel um, uh, just a better a better route to go than trying to sort of pin a wild bunch sort of climax um, to what is supposed to be a more realistic take on the West. I mean, the cast is unreal. It's definitely one of the best casts assembled for any of these where you've got like Luke Askew, who's like, you know, in a million things like uh, Cool Hand Luke. And of course, you've got the great Jeffrey Lewis, who worked with Clint Eastwood a hundred million times. Got Bo Hopkins, who worked with Peckinpah a million times, as well as, or Matt Clark, who also worked with Peckinpah. He's, you know, Belle from Peck Garrett and Billy the Kid. But as I was watching, I kept thinking, like, oh my God, oh my God. Like, or you even got the great Hal Needham as a character in here. We did a big uh, Hal Needham episode recently with Moose Matson, but this is before he made a switch to becoming a blockbuster filmmaker. And so, yeah, Hal Needham's got a, a part as the character Burgess. Yeah, uh, yeah, you you really do get all these guys that or Anthony um, James, who I know you love, who just R.I.P. died recently, but worked with um, I guess he worked like on Vanishing Point and uh, Unforgiven. But yeah, Anthony James is really cool in this. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a grouping of westerns like. 70 to like 75 and it's it's like the same dudes that just pop up wayne sutherland from um um uh, great northfield minnesota raid uh the dude who plays frank james in minnesota raid appears in it a bunch of guys from the bad company i mean jeffrey lewis was at bad company and uh bad company has the same sort of feel low-key following a teenager coming of age in the west um a lot of I mean, a lot of the scenes are the same. A lot of them have the same look. This is shot by the same guy who shot. Well, I had two cinematographers, but one of them shot Dirty Little Billy. And uh, you could see that there. Um, all these small roles from like the Wild Bunch, like the Mexican b- bartender is the is the 
is the the pimp, you know, um, the federale pimp in the Wild Bunch. Um, uh, the one of the guys that robs the the kid in this movie. Um, one of the- <laughs> I love that scene. He's just hanging out, yeah. digging a hole, like to take a shit, and these guys just walk up. And he's, they don't and, say anything. Yeah, and they don't say anything. And the kid just, he knows what's happening. And he just kind of <laughs> meekly wanders off. He's like, all right, I guess I just lost all my shit. But I loved how there was no big, like, dramatic music or any suspense. It was just so plain and every day. If you're out in the Wild West and you're not watching your back and you're taking a dump, then people can just walk up and take your horse, your rifle, t- take <laughs> take everything, and you're, yeah. you're totally fucked. And, and that guy who does that is uh, one of the bounty hunters in the Wild Bunch. And so all these, yeah, every every role, like every small part in the movie is some guy from another Western that you've seen, you know, uh, in that way. I mean, it's I mean, it's really close to Pat Garrett and, and Billy the Kid. And and uh, supposedly um, Peckinpah was a fan of it. I, I couldn't find anything where he spoke about it, but um, the director said that. And I think that that's probably true to an extent because he does end up casting a lot of guys from this. You know, uh, Charles Martin Smith is in this. This is, I think, his film debut um, at the beginning of the film. And then um, uh, Matt Matt Clark and uh, Lucas Skew ends up coming, uh, you know, showing up in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And so I, I could see where Peckinpah might have uh, might have enjoyed this film. Well, especially just the scenes where they're all just sitting around by the campfire talking shit. I mean, everybody's complaining about food and telling crazy stories about like hookers with three tits and things like that. And it's just, it's got that kind of rough and rowdy sense of humor. Or later on when they uh, send the kid in to have sex with the prostitute first and they're just jumping up and down on the bed pretending like they're having this wild encounter. And there's a lot of, there actually is some earned humor in this that feels organic and genuine and actually works. It has so many great touches to it with the, the um, you know, things just not playing out the way you'd expect, you know, like uh, the gunfighters coming in and Jeffrey Lewis, you know, bullying Matt Clark and no one comes to help him and Matt Clark just leaves. He's like, to hell with you. That, that was a, I think that might be the most interesting scene dramatically because Jeffrey Lewis punches the kid for, without warrant and then Matt Clark sticks up for him. And he's like, well, I'm not a damn gunfighter. Like, it's ridiculous. Like I, like, I take it back. But he looks at the boss, and the boss is so pragmatic and ruthless. He's like, all right. He's like, I'm, I'm staying out of this. And then as soon as Matt Clark leaves, he looks at the kids like, you just ca- cost me one of my best men. You're going to have to, like, work twice as hard. It's like, all right, well, if he was that valuable, maybe you should have stuck up for him when this goddamn bully was about to blow his brains out. Yeah, yeah. And he tells uh, Jeffrey Lewis, you know, you need to make yourself small from here on out. Yeah. And Billy, Billy Greenbush is great. He's great in this. I, I love just his, like, straight-ahead, capitalist, you know, like... Yeah, damn the torpedoes, you know. full speed ahead. He just wants to get the drive to his destination. doesn't matter what it's going to take to get there. He, but it's a, it's a quiet, kind of ruthless performance and intensity that he's got. And then, But until he meets someone who's even more ruthless than he is, when he uh, fails to negotiate grazing rights for the day when they, uh, when they ride through this town. Yeah, yeah, it... It, it I, I, I say it goes on the list of, you know, really good cattle drive movies, you know. Um, yeah, Lonesome with Dove, Red, Red River, all these kinds of cattle drive stories. Uh, uh, it's not up there with them, but it's on, but it's on the list, you know. Um, uh, and, and just investigating the, 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 the camaraderie, male camaraderie, especially with the, these 
kind of low life gunfighters. It's very interesting. I think, yeah, like I said, where it falters is trying to do these sort of peck and polish things. And I mean, the whole idea of being a more downbeat, realistic, quote unquote, realistic Western is something that I think people, especially at the time, thought Peckinpah was doing, which I don't think he was doing. I think he was going for dramatic realism. Um, but I don't think that he was actually trying to show you how the West was. But that's how I think people took it. Uh, and so you do have a lot of these Westerns that are trying to show you how the West was. And I think that's because of Peckinpah. Um, but they very rarely have the strength of their convictions. I honestly think the only one uh, that has the strength of his convictions to try to show you how things really were is uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I think the rest of them sort of take shortcuts or they try to be, you know, you know, you watch like Bad Company, which is supposed to be like a downbeat Western and I really enjoy it. But then it's got things, people are shooting guns out of each other's hands and just, you know, these sort of weird, like, uh, phony th things in them that just, they, they just clash against everything else. And, you know, for this movie, it's like every five or ten minutes they get into a gunfight with <laughs> six people getting killed. And it's like, I mean, this this had, had to have been the bloodiest cattle drive in the history of the west <laughs> like everywhere they go they they meet people and shoot them yeah the so. ca cattle rustlers etc and yeah i mean I, I guess one of the most ruthless scenes is when they catch up with that one-eyed guy and his gang because the kid he's watching out for the cattle at the night during the night he kind of chickens out he doesn't shoot this one-eyed man when he comes up to him and ends up getting i mean basically the group's gonna get rid of him entirely but they finally catch up with them in the saloon. I love how the kid's holding a gun on the bartender, and he's told, line shit out of Peckaba, if he moves, kill him. I was like, all right, <laughs> you're wearing your influences on your sleeve. And then we had that great bit with like the knife through the hand of the one-eyed man and this crazy shoot-up, like you mentioned. If you're going for naturalism and realism, you can't have like a, a Don Siegel style or Walter Hill style like epic showdown <laughs> every 10 minutes because that kind of yeah. dispels the illusion of naturalism. But... Of all the movies we're talking about today, I think Culpepper Cattle Company I might have enjoyed the most. Kayoma is really strong as well, but uh, yeah, for whatever reason, Culpepper Cattle Company, I just found myself giving myself over to its rhythms. And also, it's a nice, tight 90 minutes. You're not going to be checking your watch. You're not going to be thinking, oh, shit, like, why is this movie two hours long when it could be, not, when it could be an hour and a half? And it's got some decent uh, stock music from the Flim Flam Man by uh, the great Jerry Goldsmith. He didn't write it uh, for this movie, but it is, it is a Jerry Goldsmith score for the Jerry Goldsmith fans out there. So, yeah, I think it's yeah. well well worth hunting down for Western well, fans. Well, I, I well I kind of want I kind of want to just jump on that on the on the ending just for a bit, um, uh, because I think that's really kind of where where it falls apart for me. Um, and, you know, Gary Grimes, he's not a bad actor, but he doesn't uh, – his character I don't think is written great, and and he doesn't, like, transcend the role. So he comes off as a little, oh, gee, golly, and that gets old, I think, yeah. for me. Um, and so you're not really anchored. 
And the best part about the movie are are these gunfighter characters that that he meets up with because they're just so weird and funny and and uh, Lucas Q and Jeffrey Lewis. I mean, they're fucking incredible character actors. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, and and I think that that the vibe that they have um, is definitely Peck and Paul influenced, but it's done really really well and it's great and you kind of just want to see a whole movie about what are these guys doing what are they going to get into and they're so pissed when they get disarmed but basically they feel like their boss is backing down from this guy who's i mean they're they're surrounded and outgunned by this corrupt landowner who's trying to squeeze him for every dollar that they've got but i love how jeffrey lewis just he cannot let it go that they had to back down from this fight and when it finally gets an opportunity to turn around and get some payback they grab their rifles and they are just he's so excited to get get back get some action well and 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 you know uh you know you're saying it's it's a compact 90 minute movie and and it is but it's like and, and, and that is one of the things that's good about it. But then that becomes a weakness because it's like you, you don't you don't get to try to pack in um, the psychology of the wild bunch as to why these rough, mean bastards would sacrifice themselves. Right. Something that Peckinball took two and a half hours to explore. You don't get to try to pack that into 15 minutes of afterthought on the rest of your movie. And so I think that the, that the climax where you have these uh, Mormon or religious settlers who are on this land and they're going to get kicked off, they refuse to leave and the landowner is going to kick them off um, because they, you know, they help the cow, the cowboys after they get all their, you know, after they get disarmed and everything by the landowner and then the kid goes, yeah, come on, we got to help him. And, uh, you know, and Billy Greenbush, the Culpepper, uh, you know, he's like, we're not going to help. What are you doing, kid? You're stupid. And the kid's like, well, there's more things more important than cows. And he goes, you know, not to me. And so then he's going to stay behind. But you're like, well, well, what's he doing? You don't what's it's just to me, it's so it's so false. And I. I watch and I turn against the kid. I go, this kid's stupid now. Like, I don't, I dislike him. I actively dislike him for doing this because it doesn't make any sense. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing that really makes sense there. And then, so then you have these, the the, the gunfighter guys, these ruthless guys, and they're going to go back and help these people. And they're doing it just because their pride was damaged. But it's, that's not good enough for me that they're going to, that they're going to, go out in this blaze of glory because someone disarmed him. It just doesn't – the whole thing just rings false. So it's It could cool have been st- one of the things where a, a producer said, we need a big shootout, shove it in, whether, whether you, and figure it out. Yeah, I guess. But even then, I feel that there, there could have been a way around it. Like – it's just like you did. Uh, like I said, you don't you don't try to fit the wild bunch into into ten fifteen minutes. You know, you just not. It's gonna you're gonna shortchange your your movie, at least in my mind. So, so then they you know everyone gets killed and it's a weird scene. Everyone gets killed, of course, except the kid. Um, and then the Mormons go, well, there's too much blood here. We're going to leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Anthony and, James seems to have a direct uh, telephone line straight to God. He's like, yeah, God, <laughs> God doesn't want us to stay here anymore. It's like, but wait a second. You just like five minutes ago said you're going to stay here forever. <laughs> yeah. And then so and then so he forces them to bury 
bury them. And, uh, you know, the movie opens with the kid playing with, around with his gun, and then at the end he throws it away. Yeah, or, it's, it ends you know, very, uh, very abruptly. I, I, I'm totally 100% with you that it ends in an uh, unsatisfactory uh, fashion. But I guess if I were to compare it to The Hunting Party, it definitely feels like a big step up. Oh, for sure, for sure. But and then it and then it has like someone singing "Amazing Grace" on the sound, and you're just like, and it's just like, what, what, is, what the fuck are they doing now? It just to me feels like a betrayal of what they're going for um, um, in terms of trying to be more realistic, which it's, which it really is, is, is not. It's just more of a, it's just a dirtier, you know. Everyone's brown. That's also one of the problems. Is like. Everyone is just so dirty and brown that in the gunfights, oftentimes you're like, "Wait, who's who is this?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting, you know, <laughs> yeah. That's why that's why Peckinpah was wise to have all the members of the Wild Bunch have very distinctive looks. You always know who you're looking at. Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, it's it's a good film. I think any fan of westerns should watch it. But I think that I honestly think think that uh, he should have uh, they should have had the strength of their convictions of just being. Uh, more low key and realistic, and not try to um, be that sort of peck and paw thing. It's entertaining to watch, but it just doesn't. Uh, it it hamstrings it from, I I think, truly being uh, great. And I think the potential was definitely there. They all knew Kilpatrick. He fought for peace. Then a madman tore apart his town, murdered his wife, killed his son. Here in the schoolhouse! We got you all boxed in. We're not gonna shoot you down. Out of my town. I got something to show you! I got me a little kid! I'll blow his head off unless you drop them guns. This is Kilpatrick. I want you to take your guns, throw them into the center of the street, drop them! Mr. Kilpatrick. You forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass us against us. Now they know Kilpatrick is far beyond any law but revenge, tracking the man who cannot run far enough to ever get away. I'll be a son of a... He's crazy. 100 miles in the Mexican territory and still playing sheriff. That sheriff back in San Ignacio? It's not me he's after. It's you he wants. Fred Walker. Why San Jose? He's got a girl there. Help me! What are you doing, Where is he? Where is he? Where is Brian? My wife. My son. Kilpatrick fought for law. Now he would kill for vengeance. 
right, 1973, The Deadly Trackers, which gives us our second opportunity to talk about Sam Fuller, even though it's in a kind of limited capacity, but we talked about him before. We talked about um, 40 Guns, which is one of the coolest westerns of the uh, of the 50s. But this is a movie where we're getting into strange territory where it's just complete and total unbridled chaos behind the scenes, which leads to a movie that feels incomplete but has got some interesting ingredients to discuss. So I'd never seen this prior to your recommendation. What are your initial thoughts on the Deadly Trackers? Ooh, yeah, the Deadly Trackers. Well, uh, the Deadly Trackers, like you said, started with Sam Fuller. He'd uh, he'd written, uh, I think, a, a book. Riata, uh, yeah, yeah, Riata, and uh, you know, he he had said, um, it, "quote, you know, it was one of the best scripts I ever wrote." But to, but to be fair, Sam Fuller said that about every screenplay book they ever wrote. He's like, greatest movie of all time. Like he was a master salesman. And, 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 and I say that with all love and affection because Samuel Fuller is one of my uh, favorite directors. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's basically um, uh, about a, a, a text. Well, he, what he wrote was a Texas uh, sheriff named Briata. Uh, his wife and son are killed by, by this outlaw named Brubeck. Uh, and he chases him to Mexico, and um, you know this Mexican lawman is also after uh, Brubeck, and um, and so Riata and and the Mexican they team up, um, but the Mexican officer is like, oh, you know, he could tell that Riata is only is is only after revenge, and um, so he's trying to be his moral compass because he doesn't want him to actually just go and um, you know kill him, and so. Um, I guess MGM, uh, they agreed to produce the film. Uh, Warner Brothers. Uh, well, uh, MGM uh, initially agreed to produce oh, okay, the film. gotcha. I read somewhere, I guess, because um, I read on at least this IMDb trivia, which once again could be wrong, but they said this originally started life as the same old Fuller film with Richard Harris and Bill Hopkins. Filming had begun, but Warner Brothers were so unimpressed with the first rushes that they shut down the production and retooled it completely. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it was uh, it was originally with MGM, and actually um, uh, Jim Morrison uh, wanted to play the part, the lead, the lead uh, role. Nice, uh, but they but they turned him down. Um, so so then so then anyway, it uh, it, it it got uh, it got uh, switched over to. Um, to Warner Brothers, I don't, I'm not, uh, uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah, so MGM agreed to produce it, and they were actually shooting it in Spain once again. Um, and yeah, uh, so Richard Harris uh, was um, uh, cast in the, in the lead role. Uh, Alfonso Aru, you know, from The Wild Bunch, was going to be the Mexican uh, um, uh, police officer. Um, and uh, Bo Hopkins. Um, was, Alfonso Aru, uh, a.k.a. El Wapo from Three Amigos. Yes. And then Bo Hopkins was, go was going to be was going to be the villain. And then uh, Fuller, you know, rewrote the character to accommodate him. Um, and so. Um, so. So. Uh, one of the French producers on the film basically forced this actress who has gone unnamed. I couldn't find uh, what what who she was. 
Um, but um, I guess she was sleeping with the producer and uh, Fuller said she had very oversized breasts, but no acting talent. <laughs> and uh, so, um, so then, so then they, they, they start shooting and Fuller blames it all on the actress that all the footage they shot was, you know, just not, she was just terrible. Um, but, uh, Film editor John Glenn, who, had, who, who was working on it, uh, said that um, Fuller was spending too much time shooting and reshooting the same stuff and that most of the footage wasn't cutting together properly. And uh, he said he took Fuller aside and showed him the footage. And he said that Fuller was visibly shaken and became very emotional, apologizing profusely, trying to explain that he was suffering under a lot of pressure and all these other uh, all these other things. And so... Um, uh, somehow Warner Brothers got involved. I, I, I'm not exactly sure where it switches from MGM to Warner Brothers, um, but um, but anyway, um, uh, they they had they had to completely shut the film down after five weeks of production, and uh, it, it, they'd already spent a million dollars. So yeah, um, so so. So anyway, they, they they restart the film with a new script by um, Lucas Heller, who who had written like the Dirty Dozen and uh, you know a few other things, and um, and then they got you know a TV director Barry Shear, um, and then they changed the title to The Deadly Trackers, um, and then they um, they uh, shot it in uh, Mexico, I think uh, I don't know Durango part of it. Anyway. So they, they recast a bunch of the roles. Rod Taylor uh, is now the villain. They, they changed all the characters' names. Um, and then, you know, uh, Al uh, uh, Lettieri. I don't know how to say his last name. Yeah, I've always um, kind of butchered as well. I mean, it's Al Lettieri. But anyway, he's uh, the guy who gets his brains blown out by Michael Corleone in <laughs> The Godfather. But he's also in The Getaway and a marvelous character actor. Yeah, and so then he so then he uh, signs on as the Mexican lawman, um, and then so you know Fuller he has a story credit, um, but he you know he he later said you know they they completely lobotomized uh, my story, and I think Lucas Heller he he, he didn't as like, well yeah. yeah. Well, uh, like they always say, a success has many parents, but a failure is an orphan. People love <laughs> to distance themselves from a movie when it's going down in flames. Yeah, and then the big thing, uh, the most obvious uh, connection to the Wild Bunch is that the score, like Fred Steiner, uh, he asked for his name to be to be removed because he'd done, I guess, just a very little music of his was used in the film. Most of it is just direct music cues from Jerry Fielding's score from the Wild Bunch. Which makes uh, the movie so strange as you're watching it because you'll hear music that you associate so intimately with like really powerful scenes from the wild bunch and suddenly you've got these the score being kind of pillaged or abused or repurposed and on one hand if you're i guess maybe you could say it gives the movie a touch of class but on the other hand it just makes the whole thing feel so off and strange like you're watching the leftovers like it feels like you're eating the leftovers of somebody else's meal yeah and sometimes you're just you could just tell where they're trying to you know uh, fit a square peg in a round hole it's not even matching up 
with 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 what's on on screen. And so, um, but beyond that, you know, there are there are clear Peckinpah influences, and uh, uh, even in. I would imagine even in Fuller's um, original original incarnation, because Fuller was a, a big fan of um, Sam Peckinpah. He, I know at one point um, you could still find the article online. He was given the opportunity to uh, highlight specific films uh, in the early seventies for either some newspaper or some journal or something. Um, uh, and he picked uh, the ballad of Cable Hogue, and he wrote this long nice. thing about it and everything. And and uh, he was a, a a big fan of um, Sam Peckinpah's work, and probably could tell that's where the the western was going. And and later on, when um, he was doing uh, the big red one, Sam Peckinpah, whose career was just in the toilet at that point, uh, had. Uh, uh, called him up and offered to uh, shoot second shoot unit. Second unit on it, and uh, he was he was ecstatic. But uh, um, I don't know if the studio just didn't somehow it never came through. But um, but anyway, so they, there there was definitely a mutual respect between them, and it's and it's a mean fucking movie. <laughs> I mean, uh, it opens up with this crazy scene in this town where we see Richard Harris's family destroyed and murdered right before his eyes like after you get this nice kind of old-fashioned quaint opening with all these freeze frame images that feels very wholesome and old-timey and suddenly you have like william smith with this weird melted scar face and these the droopy eye and all these horrible bad guys just i mean they they they, they shoot his wife right in the face and they run over his son with their horses and from that point on richard harris is just some pure savage revenge mode but i i love richard harris i think he's a incredibly dynamic actor and for people who like seeing him in later things like unforgiven it's great seeing him 20 years earlier in total psycho badass mode but it's like he's being asked to do too much to kind of do all the heavy lifting for this film yeah i mean there are just such strange choices that freeze frame opening is just baffling i don't know what the fuck they were doing you're you're watching long scenes of dialogue and stuff and it's just over freeze frames and i don't know what i don't know if that the footage just if that was just something that they did in the editing room because of the nature of this cobbled together production or what but it is confusing so um (laughs) and, and the thing is like you know his his wife like getting like shot in the, like dragged and shot in the head and the and the kid the kid getting like uh, trampled and stuff and it's just like it's this the the phoniest looking dummy and it's supposed to be this just tragic scene and and it's just dummies flopping around and it's just and it, and it just comes off as as hilarious and you're just like what i mean um uh, the director had done uh, what across uh, across 110th Street, which I remember being pretty decent. But it's got a killer theme yeah. song. But yeah, I barely remember the yeah. movie. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so it it is just uh, it's just strange. And and Richard Harris, he's not done any favors by his weird fucking haircut, and then he's wearing this like long tunic with a belt he 
he looks like um, uh, like he's in a production of like Ivanhoe or something. Like he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't come off as like uh, this tough Westerner, you know. And uh, so it's uh, yeah, it it does it doesn't really work for him. And the movie is um, uh, it just doesn't work. I mean it. Uh, well, for me, it, it doesn't work. I totally agree, but it has little moments that I like. Like, perfect example, at one point, he's um, duking it out with one of the bad guys, one of his henchmen, and he allows him to, he knocks him into quicksand and lets him sink once he's answered this question he's asking him. And uh, it's a funny thing where, as a little kid, I was petrified about quicksand because I kept seeing it in movies like Flash Gordon or in uh, Blazing Saddles. But it seemed like quicksand was all over the place in all these different movies. And now quicksand never seems to be in any movies ever. Was there like a quicksand epidemic in the 70s and early 80s? Because it like as a device it was used in so many movies. But I've never seen quicksand in my 43 years on this planet. Have you ever seen quicksand? No, I've actually read that. Um, there, are, there are no – well, yeah, I, I actually read that quicksand is not really a deadly thing at all. Um People have theorized like where this fear of quicksand came from, and I think some people say like Lawrence of Arabia might have been the thing to plant after after the quicksand oh, scene. Oh, the kid Arabia, sinks in. They yeah. decided to do that. The only case I've ever heard about someone dying in quicksand is one of uh, Pancho Villa's lieutenants uh, had a bunch of gold on him, and supposedly the gold made him sink down in quicksand. But I don't know if I even believe that. That sounds like dramatic like dramatic irony and stuff but anyway, it gave me a total phobia as a kid and then my brother just to fuck with me at one point showed me something in the woods he says that's where quicksand used to be but it dried up and i would avoid this area of the woods like the plague anyway, i was petrified of quicksand for years as a little guy and as it turns out it's like being afraid of being swallowed by like the kraken it's just it's just it's just not a thing you want us to worry about well that that the quicksand scene too also is um, I thought you know because uh, uh, Neville Brand uh, plays the character Choo Choo, uh, who has one of the weirdest gimmicks I've ever seen in a movie, and I wonder if that's a holdover from uh, Fuller's script because it it has that little bit of weird comic perversity that I associate more with Fuller than the the tone or feeling of the rest of this movie, which is this guy named Choo Choo is missing one of his hands and has a piece of, uh, you know, um, the, uh, the railroad, like, <laughs> uh, track, um, uh, strapped to his arm for a hand and he uses it to smash watermelons and shit. And I guess it's a piece of like a, a railroad accident or something. His dad died in or some, some weird thing, but, I thought that once he was like, he's using this thing to bash people and everything. And I thought that in the quicksand, that's what was going to make him sink down, you know, like he couldn't like get his way out. But as he's sinking, that's the, that's the thing that's sticking up. So it's not even the thing weighing him down. I thought, I thought there was at least going to be some kind of ironic touch there uh, in his death. But, uh, but like most of the deaths in this, like, He's he just tracks these guys and meets up with one, has like kind of a dull fist fight with him and kills, a, you know, kills each one and then goes to the next. Uh, well, the whole time you have 
this Mexican officer uh, just preaching to him about the letter, the letter of the law. I guess the only part that I really enjoyed probably was when after Richard Harris temporarily loses his vision because somebody shoots a revolver off in front of his eyes. So for a while he can't see. And as his vision comes back, he's trying to keep it a secret because he plans on betraying Gutierrez. And Gutierrez is suspicious. So at one point he puts a scorpion in his water to test him. But Harris calls his bluff, and he's about to drink and basically get stung by the scorpion, and Gutierrez knocks it away. And so I thought that was a, a little interesting detail that they were playing with. And I liked having the mirror image scene at the end where basically Richard Harris has found his enemy at this convent, and Richard Harris is using his girl, his little girl, to lure him out, basically flip, flipping around what had happened to Richard Harris earlier in the film. So I thought it had a nice little mirror image uh, quality to it. But this is one of those movies where it just seems like Everything was going wrong every step of the way, and they were just doing their best to keep the trains running on time so they would have a movie that could be roughly assembled and shoved out into the market. And It, just, yeah, it feels like this a, a broken, misshapen thing in a lot of ways. But we get the, the girl from Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, who's always easy on the eyes. And yeah, I think this movie has its moments, but it is not a movie that I'll be recommending anybody put at the top of their to-do list. Well, well, yeah. I mean, like the idea of like the blind gunfighter is a nice pulpy element. Uh, the you know, there's there's these these elements that maybe came from Fuller or, or something. Um, uh, but th- my problem with the film, well, one of my problems with the film, but what I don't like. Um, about a lot of revenge movies is that I, I, I find them I find them um, hypocritical because they are capitalizing off of like uh, you know violence and revenge and we want to we you know that's what we want to see we want to see these guys get fucked up because you know um, but then they preach to you the whole time like you know, well, revenge is bad and it's just, just, and, and this movie literally has just a guy preaching to you about how revenge is bad. And so it's like, I, I, am not, I don't, well, I'm not here for a sermon. You know, there are films that, that can, that, uh, analyze vengeance or revenge, uh, you know, the, the old boy and that, that whole, uh, trilogy of movies, that do it in a way that's organic and the storytelling without having characters come out and, you know, uh, try to make you feel guilty for wanting to see this, these guys get their comeuppance. Um, so it, it just becomes a slog where, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're there for pulpy entertainment, but you're, but you're just being, you know, berated and preached to that, that, that it's bad. But then it's like I'm here to watch porn. Don't tell me that it's bad. Well, yeah, and then it, and so then you're, um, but but then the movie is just weird because I don't the twist at the end. I don't get what the point is now because you've spent your whole time telling me that revenge is bad. Taking the law into your own hands is bad. So when he finally brings in the bad guy. Uh, the Mexican officer goes, well, we don't have any witnesses or evidence. We got to let him go. <laughs> and so you're like, so wait, is the point of the movie that he was right the whole time uh, to try to take the law into his own hands? What are, what, what are you even trying to say now? 
So you've basically pretended to be this like uh, browbeating moralistic movie to then just switch it up on us at the end. Like what, you know, it, 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 it's such a horrible, just lame cheat. So then Richard Harris kills him and is riding off. And then the Mexican officer is like, Hey, you know, you need to surrender. And then Richard Harris doesn't. So then he shoots Richard Harris. Yeah. It's like, it's not organic to the characters or what you've set up at all. So it's a betrayal of the characters. And so you've just made a movie that just is trying to make the audience feel guilty the whole time. So it's just so muddled and incoherent. Something that maybe could have worked is, like you said, which I enjoyed too, the reversal of Richard Harris taking uh, Rod Taylor's daughter hostage. Had he been killed by the Mexican officer at that point, obviously a lot of story elements would have to change. That might have, that could have been more powerful and it would have made more sense why the Mexican officer would have to shoot him because he's now gone over the line. Yeah. But the fact that he's just not going to let him be himself be arrested is not big enough for the officer to shoot him in the back. So I don't know what the point of the movie is to show that there's a propensity for violence in everyone, but it's done in the most ham fisted way. So yeah, it, it's just, the movie is just a, it, a total mess. <laughs> Misfire, as Gene Hackman Total. would say at the end of Unforgiven. Yes. Total misfire. <laughs> well, well, beautiful. Well, let's talk about another movie that I might categorize as a misfire, but it's got a few little moments that I like. But we got Las Viboras Cambian de Piel, a.k.a. Guns and Guts from 1974, directed by Rene Cardona Jr. Uh, I never heard of this until you mentioned it as a movie that you you had heard also – takes excuse from the wild bunch and this is a pretty slow boring movie with very strange action scenes where there is a lot of long takes and kind of awkward choreography but it does have a few little moments like a little line at one point when somebody's watching a hooker strip and a guy says what a beautiful carcass i was like all right that's a kind of a funny weird (laughs) grim line (laughs) <laughs> at one point you have these three guys pissing against the side of the wall when a young guy challenges one and the one person hears his name and he kind of turns to his head to look at the young guy and ends up like pissing on his friend next to him. So there's little funny moments like that. But man, this movie was slow as hell. And I think of all the movies that I saw in preparation for this episode, this one might be at the bottom of the list for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this was one that I hadn't seen uh, before preparing for this episode, but I, I had seen the end gunfight. Uh, when I, Which when is I wild. Working. It ends in dramatic fashion. Yeah. It almost so, has too much action at the end. I was like, holy shit, like, y'all, y'all are really going for, really going for it. <laughs> Yeah, my uh, when I was working on uh, the, the the film that I had done with uh, uh, Van Heusen, a, a friend of mine who uh, is a is a big expert on like spaghetti westerns. If he's ever interested, he should come on. He knows way more about spaghetti westerns than I do. Um, but um, he'd shown the clip of the the end gunfight uh, to us, and so um i had always had it in my mind as as this sort of peck and paw riff so i thought that might be an interesting one to take a look at but boy outside of that end gunfight it's it's rough um it it's a mexican western uh it stars jorge rivera who uh will later show up in um the last hard men mm-hmm. uh 
He's also in Soldier Blue. He's this like Mexican bodybuilder in Soldier Blue. He's, he's to- total stud. He's ridiculous. He's like a bodybuilder, but he's like this Indian like brave. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, they didn't have that kind of physicality. You don't, <laughs> you don't, uh, you don't get ripped like that. Uh, you know, living um, off the land, Buffalo on the plains. Yeah. yeah. But, um, uh, so yeah, it, so it starts him. It also has uh, uh, Pedro Ar- Armendariz. I don't, I don't know Pedro something Armendariz Jr., uh, the son of um, uh, the the Mexican guy in Three Godfathers and in a bunch of other films. And he's also he shows up in uh, he's actually in the Deadly Trackers as one of the Mexicans, and uh, he's the priest in Tombstone. Um, but it's basically, yeah, it starts out and these guys, these outlaws are on the run and they, they kind of meet up and two of them, they are both like almost identical. So I was at first like, wait, is this the same guy? These, like they have just and like, these the same very strange shirt. names. You've got Prisionero Escapado and Esposa Abandonado. So basically it means like escaped prisoner and abandoned husband, I think, or the translation for their, two, oh. their characters' names. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> so, uh, there's just, and the hero by played by Jorge Rivera. He's just, he's just El Pistilero. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's just a lot of scenes of like comical sort of fist fights and, um, you know, uh, a they're lot like of unintentionally stuff. comic cause they're like so like long and slow and boring and like poorly staged. And I was thinking maybe just yeah. a few close ups or a few cuts, but it's just these really long takes. Yeah. And there's, it is, it is weird cause there's a lot of like humor. It doesn't really come off very well, but in, in, through, throughout the film, uh, you know, lots of stuff with Jorge Rivera hanging out with these whores and playing strip poker. So there's a lot of gratuitous nudity just, <laughs> just thrown in there. Um, and, um, uh, and then it's, so it, it, it almost plays comically. Um, and the story is, you know, this guy, he's like a pimp and he's teamed up with these other guys and they have to get this corrupt sheriff in a monastery or something. But, then it becomes a tragedy just at the end and you're just like well where did that come from like <laughs> just totally yeah it's it's totally, totally bananas we're almost back in revenge of the wild bunch territory but i like how you know they weren't making any attempt to disguise the fact they're inspired by the wild bunch you got like the gatling gun being used over and over and over again and lots of people doing like the slow motion falling off rooftops which is once again whether you're talking about the beginning or the end of the wild bunch all those cutaways to people falling in slow motion so it's a clear love song to the wild bunch it's just this movie is not as good as, the, as good as the wild bunch no no not quite and also quick uh, question is El Pistilero's look, like his outfit and his hat, is that basically just taken straight from Billy the Kid's look from Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid? Because it looked like they just took like the wardrobe out of that movie and just swapped it out and put it right into this flick as well. Oh, man. You know, I, I, I have to take a look at that again. Yeah, I guess I could see that. Yeah, yeah. No, I... Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. Because this came out in 74, which would have given them an opportunity to see Pat Garrett love the look and say, fuck it, we're just stealing it. Yeah, I yeah I could. Uh, that's that's entirely possible. That's entirely that's probably like. But uh, so yeah, uh, the end gunfight is pretty well done. They they hold some of the slow motion too long. There's a guy getting shot earlier in the film in the neck, 
and they just hold this this long slow motion shot of just this is blood just gurgling out of his neck it's 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 kind of harrowing but then just done like it's just done like so like what was the point of that you know so now is there a uh, decent number of mexican westerns because i feel like on twitter at least there are a lot of spanish-speaking people who i can tell adore westerns they just go fucking berserk for westerns i'm like all right we'll bring it on like I, I i love meeting fellow western lovers but are there people from mexico who have dabbled in the western genre i mean because i i just i really have no idea yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah. There, I think there's a, there there is a decent amount of uh, Mexican westerns. I mean, all all throughout all throughout the 20th century. I mean, um, yeah. It, 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 I mean, it lends itself to that for sure. Um, and then, of course, uh, just a, a lot of movies about the revolution and and uh, all of that. So yeah, no. There's a there's a there's a good amount of. Uh, of Mexican uh, westerns, and I, I have friends who are just like even more so into into the genre than even I am. They just uh, just go into every every subgenre. Who- well, it seems like with uh, a lot of the spaghetti westerns, you know, obviously Mexican Revolution is a, a recurring theme in a lot of them. But those are obviously a- Italian films. I just didn't know to what extent Mexico had had embraced the genre. I think yeah, I think they've embraced it, but but uh, yeah, I mean, I I haven't even I've just barely even dipped my toe into um, into Mexican-made westerns. All right, well, should we start or stop fucking around and dive into what sounds like it's your favorite movie on this list today? A movie that I briefly talked about, I think, like two years ago, maybe three years ago, when I did an Enzo G. Castellari episode with Mackenzie Lambert. But we got Kiyoma from 1976. So, lay it on me. I thought, well, I think Culpepper Cattle Company is my favorite of the list. Make, make the case for Kiyoma.
Oh well, yeah, K- Kaoma. I mean, I, I mean, I guess they're they're pretty close, but I I, I find uh... this is certainly the more operatic of the two. I mean, you got the wild singing and the, the soundtrack, and obviously Franco Nero, one of the all time greats when it comes to genre cinema, and yeah, it's it's definitely a very, much more of a sweeping kind of film. Yeah, I I, I kind of find it uh, to be in 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 some ways uh, kind of a moving film almost in spite of itself <laughs> in many respects but uh yes Kaoma is um you know uh it's a film that that I had found once I started getting into westerns and uh, dipping my toe into spaghetti westerns this was one that I saw early on and uh and fell in love with and it also just led me to um, discovering other Enzo Costellari movies, uh, his Euro crime films like High Crime and uh, other High things High Crime's like that. Wild. And, uh, you know, and then I, I got an opportunity to meet him and um, show him some of my work. And then I, um, and then I was uh, uh, briefly involved. I mean, I got to meet Franco Nero a few times um I was briefly um, somewhat involved in, um, uh, I don't know if you heard the announcement uh, years ago now, uh, the the Django sequel that they were going to make, which I think might be dead now. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard about it, where Django was supposed to be... Or Franco uh, Nero is going to come back? Because he was... And they, I know they made a shitload of Django sequels back in the day, but Franco Nero was only in the first one, correct? Yeah, well, he was in the first one, and then he was in that weird 80s one. And then, so, um, probably maybe a little less than 10 years ago now, they, they were going to do a film where... Django is uh, uh, in early like nineteen like silent era uh, Hollywood gotcha. as a as a like horse wrangler or something. I don't know if you ever heard those announcements. I didn't. It must have been around the time of uh, Tarantino's Django and Chain though, and obviously that helped resurrect interest in the character. Yeah, yeah. Well, basically the the guys that had come up with that um, had worked on the film that I worked on with Dan Van Heusen and and uh, the guy whose idea was initially actually asked me to to write it first, but we were working on another project, and then he kind of went off and, and wrote it himself. But anyway, uh, then it, then now it is uh, it got sold off, and now it's being developed, uh, or it was rewritten by John Sales, and so I don't know where the project is now. But so I was able to kind of you know meet uh, Franco Nero a few times on the project and. And and stuff like that. Anyway, kind of unrelated. But Did you I tell him about your unenduring or, 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 or your enduring and unabashed affection for Enter the Ninja when you met him? Oh yes, definitely, definitely. <laughs> now, those those scenes in uh, Electric Boogaloo when he's talking about, it, I was like, oh, they told me I was a ninja. I I, I know nothing about ninja. <laughs> but, like, he, he's just like, all right, whatever. I guess I'm I'm a ninja now. <laughs> yeah, I um, the first time I met him. Uh, it was him and Castellari, but he uh, first I was uh, talking to Castellari, and we didn't know where Nero was at. And then I and then I found Nero, and then and I was and he was he was like, uh, where is Castellari? Where is that son of a beach? You know, he has that very like <laughs> Italian 
dramatic way of speaking and everything. But anyway, so so Kaoma is a is a is a film that uh, after sort of the the spaghetti western genre had died out. Nero Franco Nero had done a few Euro crime films with uh, Castellari, and they decided to uh, do do another western. Um, and, and Castellari had done a few spaghetti westerns, uh, you know, stuff with like Ed Burns, uh, you know, Seven Winchesters for a Massacre or Any Gun Can Play. Or he didn't want Chuck Connors uh, Kill Them All and Come Back Alone, which I think is one of, one of the great movie titles of all time. Um, <laughs> but uh, so anyway, so, so, so the film is uh, uh, basically Franco Nero plays – uh, a, a half a half breed Indian um, who uh, comes back to this town that is uh, run by this sort of um, run by this gang of Confederates um, uh, after the Civil War, um, and then his half brothers, his three half brothers who hate him, are in league with this guy. Um, but there, there's internal conflict, but there's basically, there's a plague going on. Um, and, the coronavirus uh, was <laughs> yes, running rampant exactly. throughout the town. And, um, there's this pregnant woman who, whose husband is killed and she supposedly has the plague. And, and then, so Kaoma decides to, uh, to protect her and protect the people in the town. And well, I love how he, when he decides to help her, he says, I never liked people who talk too much. Get off your horse. And just blast him yeah. with a shotgun. <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> you, made up, yes. you, made up your mind, you made up your mind very quickly to help out. <laughs> yeah. And then so, you know, then he meets up with his old uh, friend played by Woody Strode. It's one of the all-time great kind of Western legends for, you know, a lot of people don't like watching Westerns because it seems like they're made by and starring nothing but white folks. But Woody Strode, he was like a professional wrestler and then was in Spartacus. But he had this incredible friendship with John Ford and showed up in things like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Obviously, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West as well. So yeah, Woody Strode is a, a genuine – oh, and the, the professionals. He's incredible in the professionals with his bow and arrows. So genuine Western icon. Yeah, and then uh, and then also he meets up with his his father, who's kind of you know who who loves him, but is also torn because his other sons are are you know part of this corrupt sort of uh, organization. You know, so that basically goes off from there. But uh, it's it's just a it's a it's an interesting movie because what I think that it does well and taking what Peckinpah does and it's clearly the, the the way Castellari had shot action scenes um was heavily indebted to Peckinpah and um and uh he, he, even in his Eurocrime stuff so it's not just in in this western and other ones that he's done but what he what he comes up with that is somewhat different than his Eurocrime stuff is it has a very surreal, dreamlike feel to it. Oh yeah, with like all these like like this basically the equivalent of like a grim reaper who keeps appearing to him. This like this old lady angel of death, and it's a very hallucinatory, almost kind of spiritual journey at times. Yeah, she's like something out of Shakespeare or like uh, Bergman or something. Yeah, like she's totally. Uh, and, and it's just like the the way that the the flashbacks are done, which are great. Like. 
really, apart from the kid's hair, the, really, the kid's hair in the flashbacks, I was like, all right, y'all need to maybe tap the oh, brakes uh, on the mop. Well, <laughs> oh, well, that's, I mean, that, that is part of the, the, the corniness. Of yeah. The that's just so you know which character we're looking at, but I love seeing Woody Strode teaching him archery as a boy and things like that. And so all that shit was insanely cool. Yeah, the kids are so funny because they are almost like dressed exactly. They almost look exactly like their the adult counterparts. Actors. Yeah, they've yeah, had the same haircut like, and clothing style their entire lives. Yeah, yeah, which is funny, and and it's like you know the 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 brothers beat him up because uh, he's supposed to be this half breed Indian, and uh, I'm like thinking the whole time like like to like the father who feels bad that his son's being bullied, like, stop dressing him like a fucking Indian then if you're worried about him, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, I would just put a shirt on him, you know? Yeah. And and Franco Nero is, like, you know, uh, one of the least convincing, uh, you know, half Indians since uh, since uh, Steve McQueen and Nevada Smith. <laughs> or... Uh, or James Coburn in The Last Hard Men, which we'll get to. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, it's just like, I guess because he has a, an Italian accent, it's like, well, yeah, it's because he's uh, uh, part Indian, you know. It's also funny is the brothers hate him because they're racist, but like at least two of the brothers are way swarthier. Yeah. <laughs> darker skinned with darker hair than Franco Nero. Like there's the, the one guy, I can't remember the actor's name, but he looks kind of like uh, Eric Bogosian mixed with like Donald Sutherland. <laughs> and it's like, he's like totally, totally looks way darker uh, than Franco Nero, the blue eyed, you know, uh, almost blonde haired Franco Nero. But it is kind of funny him with his big hair and his hair extensions and the, uh, and walking around with like a, with a duster with no shirt on and stuff, it's it he, he looks a little silly. But uh, the 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 look of the rest of the movie, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is what I like about it is it it it's not trying to be realistic. It's it, it, which is I think what trips up a lot of these other, um, you know, Peck and Paw inspired. Uh, it's film. highly stylized. I mean, you get that from the moment you hear the theme song, and this is the same music. Uh, I guess music by uh, Guido and yeah. Maurizio de De Angelis, if I'm saying that correctly. And they also yeah. do the music for a man called Blade. But it, it just takes you into this otherworldly realm, and it, in no way, shape, or form is trying to make it feel grounded or gritty or naturalistic. The, uh, that's what makes spaghetti western so much fun. Is that it's style taken to this crazy extreme and it makes it almost like a hallucinatory experience. Yeah. And so it does have a lot of the stylistic aspects of spaghetti Westerns. uh, Another movie that it's uh, really uh, in terms of the compositions and the compositions are great. Like just that opening shot where it's all dark and there's just like a doorway and then you just yeah, see – Yeah, it's off on the far right. right. You see somebody off in yeah. a distance. But yeah, killer composition. I mean, I mean Enzo G. Castellari's personal favorite film that he ever made. Yeah, or, or, the, or the, the shot during the big gunfight where Nero's in the tower and, and the camera is just going in a circle and outside through the slits – you have these guys shooting up at him, riding their horses and everything, and, and he, it's tracking to where it's perfectly with every crack and every slip between the wood. You you see the action happening. It's a lot of it is really really well done. But uh, he based a lot of those uh, compositions and stuff off of 
uh, the Marlon Brando Western, uh, The Appaloosa. Which oh, interesting. Is, uh, Sydney J. Fury with John Saxon. And uh, you can uh, you can see that if you ever watched if you've ever seen it, um, the compositions are a lot of that foreground, you know, tons of foreground in this movie. I don't think there's one shot that doesn't have that isn't framed by something or doesn't have something like real close, you know, uh, close to the camera in front of all the action. So um, so it, it's interesting in that way. But where it differs from most spaghetti westerns is that it doesn't there's no irony to it there's no um uh i mean there is a lack of humor it's not it, there's not a lot of humor to it which it's makes very it earnest it's very, it's very earnest overall and there's every moment's meant to be taken deadly seriously apart from you, the mullet that the the baby kioma has <laughs> <laughs> yes uh yeah so and I think part of that is uh, is um, the uh, is a holdover from the Eurocrime films that he'd been doing um, with Franco Nero because th- those films are trying to be more um, I guess you would say realistic, more documentary style. I mean, they're basing themselves off of like the French Connection. A lot of it is just guerrilla shooting, and and those movies are very earnest and and. Franco Nero, like, he got his start as Django, but he, I, I feel he's always, for his talents, he was always somewhat miscast as Django. I don't think Franco Nero is the tough, laconic um, stranger. I don't think that ever suited his uh, personality. He's, uh, he works best when he's earnest, and he's just as likely to... Uh, punch you in the face as he is to break out in tears. You know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, uh, uh, he 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 does things that you don't expect from a spaghetti western hero. You know, um, uh, you know, crying or this or that, and it and it works. Um, and so that's what kind of separates it from the Leone movies or or even Castellari's earlier films. Uh, earlier spaghetti westerns, which are more comedies, you know, which more have that ironic uh, distance, you know. Well, this movie does have one killer scene where, as I was watching, I was thinking to myself, I'm really starting to fall in love with this because I saw it, like I said, years ago and it made an impact, but I liked it a lot more the second time around. But you had this giant battle royale where you've got Kaoma riding horses and like chucking knives at people and like throwing people off buildings in slow motion. And you got Woody Strode using his bow and he's kind of giving them backup and support. And then you've got his dad who's helping out and taking people out with his right. It's like they, have, they form this cool team or this reunion where these old timers kind of like step up and do the right thing and really start standing up for him. And I just thought that that battle scene from start to finish was exhilarating to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it, yeah, exactly. And, uh, so it, it's, 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 it's weird because you know, I know the movie was written as, as they were shooting it and you can tell. Oh yeah. They, they basically uh, the dialogue they were making up as they went along almost like on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. And so, you know, and, uh, in, in a lot of ways that, that doesn't work. You could see where that where that shows through. It's it's definitely a, a flawed 
very, very flawed film. But I feel like with an Italian spaghetti western, all these movies, they're always being dubbed after the fact anyway. Like, just have them move their lips and count from one to ten and then put in whatever screenplay you like. Like, <laughs> you take your time and write a script <laughs> afterwards. Yeah, that is true. Um, uh, I, I guess a lot of the – it was written by um, – uh, one of the one of the three brothers who was a, an American guy and a writer, it just for whatever reason it, it works for me. It's got great symbolism and Im- imagery, like when he's strapped to that wheel in the rain for days and things like that. I mean, there's some really beautiful stuff if, if you like the the dark side. Yeah, and a lot of times when the spaghetti westerns like go overboard with like the Catholic like crucifix imagery. It's kind of like you just roll your eyes because you're like, okay, well, what? Okay, well, then what are you trying to say? But this is this is one where it just kind of works because it's so it's 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 been so it's so earnest and so dreamlike and so surreal that you kind of uh, you just go, yeah. I mean, that's just that feels organic to the world. So, but um, so yeah, uh, obviously, Wild Bunch is a big influence, but. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid was a huge influence, and uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller was a huge influence. Uh, I guess when he was doing um, Seven Winchesters for a Massacre, Ed Byrne, who was uh, who was an American actor and one of the guys that was the influence on uh, for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah, yes, yeah, and the, I, uh, the Rick Dalton character, yeah, and um, I guess he gave Castellari a copy of the book McCabe. Um, in the late sixties. And then, and then he'd, he'd love the book and he would put pieces of it in, into his movies, um, from, from then on. And then he saw the, the uh, Robert Altman's adaptation, you know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller and was, uh, just blown away. And, um, you can see some of that influence cause that is also a very, has a very dreamlike feel, although it's much more, uh, grounded and realistic but also in the way that the town is. And this, this is, has uh, production designed by Carlos Simi, who did all of uh, Leone's Westerns up until uh, before. He, he didn't do Duck You Sucker, but he had he'd done, he basically uh, made done the, the four look. big ones before. Yeah. And uh, this was shot on the same set as Django, but it was in disrepair because they hadn't made any Westerns in years. Um, and so that sort of like, they, they, it was just falling apart, and so they, they like overdress it with weird mining equipment and trash everywhere and mud. And Castellari just loves slow motion shots of people falling in puddles and all that. <laughs> yeah, like during so, fist fights, slow motion fist fights, and or people blowing away their own men or whatever the case may be. But yeah, there's no, there's no shortage of moments of uh, beautiful death and destruction. That's one of the funny things is that. You know, the spaghetti Western actors would always like they'd spin and throw their arms in the air and stuff. And uh, when you when you uh, when you put that into some peck and paw slow motion, it becomes even more like almost silly. They almost look like they're like on trampolines, (laughs) you know, just pirouetting through the air, getting shot. But um, uh, so I guess when he uh, did his assembly cut uh, of the film, he scored it entirely to. Uh, the soundtrack to Pat Garrett uh, and uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Um, and he says, you know, Castellari says, oh, if you could only, if I could only show you my, that original cut with that music. Um, oh boy, that, you know, that was, that was the real, that was his preferred cut. But I think the score works for it. the score is such a huge part of the flavor. And you hear, I mean, it's one of the things where 
you better get on board with this score because what initially you might think it sounds a little shrill at times, but it becomes part of this giant ballad or saga that you're watching and it really helps establish the flavor and tone of the movie overall so if in the first couple of minutes you're struggling with the music you might struggle with the rest of the film because you're going to hear it pretty much the entire movie i think that is probably the biggest hurdle that people have regarding this film because it can be tough that this the actual score itself is i think really good the vocals, not so much. I mean, eventually you kind of just go, okay, this is what it is. But even Castellari himself has said, like, if he could redo it, the only thing he'd redo is maybe take out some of those <laughs> some of those vocals. They are they could be tough to take. It's sort of like a, I, it's like a lady just like trying to do I don't know a Joan Baez sort of thing, and then yeah, it's just a little too high pitch, like it's slightly out of a range. But then the, then the male vocal comes in, and it's, like, too low. And it sounds like something pimp. out of, like, uh, Vampiro's Lesbos or something when the, male, when the male vocal comes in. To me, it sounds like something out of an aquarium, like a seal, like, <laughs> as food or something. <laughs> ah, my father. And it's just, it's just, it can get rough. So, uh, yeah, I... I I, I wish there was a cut of the movie that just had the score and not the vocals, but it, I mean, it does contribute to the feeling of it. And I guess it's maybe supposed to be like the, the witch lady sort of her, uh, say, like, I don't, I, she, it's sort of her, what's going on in her mind or something. But, but then it, even if you like, the lyrics it, don't the even second time sense. through, I like the score a lot more than the first time through. Second time through, I actually kind of started to fall in love with the score. <laughs> it, it, it does grow on you, but then it's almost like you could tell like the person, it, it feels like not only that, it feels like they're making up the lyrics as they're going along, but well, it's they someone, made up the script as they went along. So why not make up the song as you go to? <laughs> yeah. But then it's like someone who like English clearly isn't their first language. So when you actually listen to what they're saying, it doesn't, doesn't actually make any sense it's so yeah it's it's uh it's it's rough that's a that's one that's a hard one to get over and there you know there are silly things in it in in the movie all throughout it i mean it is a silly sort of ridiculous movie i think maybe because it has sort of a an aura of exploitation to it but that's what a lot of people sign up for when they watch these italian genre films whether you like italian horror or Italian like Italian westerns or sex comedies or true crime th- thrillers or whatever it's that deliriously strange kind of almost ephemeral quality that's hard to put your finger on that keeps people coming back and it's why we've seen this giant explosion over the last 20 years of DVDs and Blu-rays of the most obscure movies imaginable because everybody wants to find that that one track of music or that one crazy scene or that one totally bonkers moment that you would never see outside of a Italian genre cinema. Yeah, and I guess maybe that's why I, I am maybe more forgiving of this than like something like the Culpepper Cattle Companies, you know, where, you know, uh, Kaoma throwing a knife in a guy's hand from on top of a, a huge, you know, on top of a hill, it, like ridiculous things that, that happen in the movie. It just, it feels more organic, I guess. But sometimes it, it tips itself, you know, sometimes it goes a little too, too silly or too stupid or, 
Um, you know, and, and the fact that they didn't have a full script, I mean, oh, it's like that line in, uh, this is spinal tap is a fine line between brilliant and stupid. And <laughs> yeah. And you know, he, when, at the end, when he has to kill his brothers or whatever, you feel that maybe he should feel a little bit more tortured about the fact that he's, you know, even though they never got along or something, it just sort of seems like a strange afterthought. Um, the, the, the him with the with the kid being delivered and, and then like just giving it to the witch and she's like he'll die Kaoma and then he goes he will never die because he's free yeah and, <laughs> what are you talking about so it's like there there needed to be something something else there because then you just kind of like all right you know uh, you've been really earnest this whole time, but yeah, someone needs to take care of this fucking baby. And I don't even know if the witch is real. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I don't know if she's supposed to be an embodiment of death or, you know, cause it's, I, mean, it's, I viewed her as like a spirit uh, throughout, but, uh, you never quite know. Yeah. So, so is there some, uh, you know, is the reality that he just left a baby there <laughs> and just rode off? Like it just, so, so some things just don't don't work, you know. When when he gets mad at Woody Woody Strode's character and and calls him the N word, and it's just like uh, we didn't need that. Like it doesn't it doesn't come off organically. It just it's just kind of a thing that is just thrown in in an unpleasant way. It doesn't it doesn't feel right for the character. So there are just things where it's it's trying to be so like. Uh, de- deep and profound in a way that it just it isn't, and so you know it. Uh, at times, it's almost like a movie that's pretending to be a masterpiece. You know, well, it's a very <laughs> flawed film where if you love it in spite of or because of its flaws, then you can totally have a great time watching it. But it's hard to say. Like, I mean, if somebody really wants to watch like a great Italian spaghetti western, if they're tired of the Man with No Name trilogy or the Leone films. I don't know if I'd tell him to start with Kiyom. I'd probably tell him to start with like Sergio Corbucci's like The Mercenary or something like that. I think there are some other ones out there that are stronger. But it's like once you've worked your way through Leone and Corbucci and you're still hungry for more spaghetti westerns, well, yeah, you got movies like The Big Gun Down and Kiyoma just sitting there waiting for you. Yeah. So, I, I mean, uh, yeah, if you can get past the, the score, I, I think – that or it's, fall in love with the score, either or. You got to either get past it or embrace it. <laughs> well, I think you got to get past it before you can fall in love with it. <laughs> so, uh, um, but yeah, so uh, I, I definitely recommend it. Well, one night when you and I get to hang out in LA, we'll do uh, karaoke night and we'll we'll sing the Kioma <laughs> theme song to uh, uh to, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll empty the room very quickly. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll clear the place out. Uh, and, uh, and, um, they, uh, Castellari and, uh, Nero later did sort of a soft remake of Kaoma in the eighties called, uh, Jonathan of the bears. Uh, but I don't recommend that one. It's not very good. It somehow has an even worse vocals, uh, on, on the soundtrack. And, uh, it has a bunch of native Americans that are clearly just played by like, uh, Asians. Oh, wow. <laughs> And uh, and then also uh, and then it also has some weird characters, guys that are dressed up like um, uh, uh, the guys from uh, what what are, 
what are those Castellari eighties movies? I can't remember the the Bronx Warriors or whatever. Oh yeah, well he's like, got a ton of them. Um, he's yeah. and I, it's a weird thing where ever since I started this podcast, I do so much cramming for these episodes that when I'm done with the research for a particular episode, it's almost like I I flush all the movies out of my brain and I'm like, what the hell did we even talk about? I can't even remember. But here they are. Yeah, 1990, The Bronx Warriors, Escape yeah. from the Bronx, the Warriors of the Wasteland. These are his like early early 80s dystopian sci-fi flicks yeah yeah i i have uh not seen every costellary movie but i went on a costellary kick so i've seen like light blast with eric estrada i don't know if you've ever seen that that i've not Uh, seen street law i've seen high crime i've seen the big racket i think i saw the heroin busters but once again i need to listen to the episode to even remember what the fuck it is that I watched because uh, <laughs> I just tackled how what, what what episode was that of oh, wrong, wrong real Castle this is horrifying people are like what you don't actually remember everything you fucking done yeah wrong real three three eight was the um, our episode called the high octane cinema of Enzo G Castellari well if you could find a copy of Light Blast. It takes place in San Francisco. It stars Eric Estrada, and it's about a guy who has this machine that somehow turns uh, digital clocks into lasers that melt people's heads. And so it's a bunch of people getting their heads melted, like the end of um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's nice. like they're clearly just doing that effect. Um, and so, yeah, when I when I um, when I met. Costellari the first time I was with my friend who had no idea who he was and he was like what the fuck who is this guy like why are we wasting time meeting up with this dude or whatever and then afterwards I was like come on that was the dude he made Kaoma he made he made Light Blast and my friend has seen Light Blast because I showed it to him he's like that was the guy who made Light Blast he was because <laughs> he loved that movie. Nice. It was one of the wackiest fucking movies. So check out Light well, That's what's fun about the uh, all the like Italian schlockmeisters of the 70s as they shifted into the 80s. All their uh, some of those movies are genuinely bizarre. Like what's it called? Like Super Fuzz, the one that um that oh, Corbucci yeah. did, where the guy yeah. has like superpowers, but he loses them when he sees the color red and stuff. Like <laughs> that was that was the first. Corbucci film that I ever saw something I was like five or six on TV like a million times I had no idea that I was watching a movie by one of the great Italian maestros yeah yeah so so yeah so Kaoma I think maybe I think is um the one that I feel is the most um artistically coherent I guess of all these fair enough a cat like cold-blooded killer is waiting A man who brought law and order to the Arizona Territory is coming for him. Theirs is the ultimate showdown. They are the last hard men. Charlton Heston, a marshal so good, he lived to retire. James Coburn, a violent man who's waited 11 years to kill him. He wants to kill me slow. He's coming. The last hard men. I take your heart. And their shootout becomes cinematic legend. Now from 20th Century Fox, in the classic tradition of high noon, the final showdown. Captain. The last hard men. Drop it. Rated R. All right. Let's move on into the 
late, I guess maybe this is the same year, 1976, but we're back within the hands of an American director, a good old-fashioned kind of old-timey director by the name of Andrew V. McLaglen, who did like Shenandoah, McClintock, he's, you know, one of those kind of classic Hollywood guys from the late 50s to early 60s, but coming back to show that he can still do it with the Western, but we have The Last Hard Men from 1976, which features yet another unimaginably good cast of all these films. This is a strong contender from the best cast. We got Charlton Heston and James Coburn and Michael Parks and Barbara Hershey, some really good actors. And it's another straight up, I guess, kidnapping slash revenge saga with a lot of horrific violence. But I love Charlton Heston. I love James Coburn. And watching these two guys match wits and trade body blows and shootouts, etc., was pretty goddamn fun just to see those two fellows throw down. So it's not, I'm not going to say it's going to replace my favorite movies by either of those guys, but I did enjoy taking a crack at this one. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, The the Last Hard Men. Um, it's, yeah, like you said, Andrew uh, V. McLaughlin, who uh, was kind of a John Wayne hack director. He, yeah. you know, if you If you watched one of John Wayne's latter-day hack movies – very likely that McLaughlin was the guy behind it. Uh, so it's funny to see him um, attempting to do a hard-ass, violent, uh, gritty... Yeah, because John Wayne avoided all that. Like John Wayne had an aversion to all the kind of deconstructionist, down-and-dirty, ruthless westerns. He, they kind of turned his stomach in a lot of ways. Yeah, and but, you know, uh, but even, even, um, even Wayne's work had to take into account uh, uh, Peckinpah. It had to take into account the influence of the Wild Bunch. Uh, and so uh, I mentioned Big Jake earlier. Uh, and this one almost, you know, it once again has that same sort of uh, kidnapping plotline. Have you seen Big Jake? I have. I saw. I think I actually saw it twice back in college. But... I thought you was dead, I'm like not hardly, but uh, <laughs> that's like the only scene I remember from it. <laughs> well, it's you know it's a turn of the century western. It also has uh, Chris Mitchum, uh, who's in this one. Um, yeah, it's sort of the it's it, it, it has a it opens with a massacre. Uh, you know, all these innocent people on this farm be, being massacred by Richard Boone and his men, and um, and it yeah has a you know, sort of cars and motorcycles and automatic weapons in it. So it, it, it's very much sort of a pseudo peck and paw, uh, type of film, but you know, for the whole family, but it's, it's bloodier and more violent than most, uh, most John Wayne films up to that point. But I still think it got like a G rating. So, <laughs> um, but uh, so so yeah, the last hard men. It, it's it's uh, from a script by Brian Garfield, who had uh, written the. Um, well, it's not. It's you know, it's based on a book by Brian Garfield called The Gun Down, I think something like that. And uh, he was the guy who had written the book uh, Death Wish. Okay. Um, and uh, then he was um, he was brought on to kind of do little rewrites here and there. Uh, on this film and he's also wrote a somewhat famous book in the 80s where he like kind of analyzes uh all these westerns gives his opinions on them and stuff um i think he was a guy who really disliked uh spaghetti westerns so he, he could be a very opinionated 
um, opinionated guy. Oh, well, tons uh, of people resisted the spaghetti western. That's one of my favorite parts about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is how Rick Dalton's character hates spaghetti westerns. And of course, as Cliff Booth points out, he hasn't even seen any of them, but he just knows he hates them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a lot of those um, – uh, yeah, a lot of those old timers, yeah, really, really disliked him. But, you know, it is interesting, uh, near the end of his life, uh, Woody, Woody, not, not near the end of Woody Strode's life, but Woody Strode, uh, was trying to get, um, John Ford a job directing Spaghetti Westerns because, uh, after Cheyenne Autumn, like he could not get a movie off the ground, um, and uh, I can't remember if he just uh, ended up dying or or what. I I, I don't know. I, I don't ever think I ever got John Ford's opinion on uh, spaghetti westerns. I don't remember ever reading that either. I mean, yeah, because that Cheyenne Autumn was sixty four, and he did a few more things after that, like Young Cassidy, uncredited in sixty five, Seven Women in six sixty six, and then there's yeah. a documentary, Chesty, a tribute to a legend, which I don't know why, because that's after his death. So. Uh, his death was in 73, but the movie comes out in 76. So I, I, I don't know what his involvement was in that documentary. But obviously, Cheyenne Autumn, we were getting near the bitter end of his flick, uh, of his career. Yeah, Cheyenne Autumn was the, la- the wa- last Western he did. I, it was after Seven Women. I don't remember exactly the time, exactly the year, but I do know that Woody Strode at one point was trying to get uh, John Ford to direct a spaghetti Western, which would have been interesting. Of course, it would have probably just been a – financed by you know european companies and shot in spain or or italy i i don't think that he would have aesthetically yeah. made something like no, that. he would not have turned um, into sergio corbucci overnight no yeah yeah uh, um but uh but uh you know i know bud bedeker really disliked uh um spaghetti westerns and uh he was really unhappy with um how they had taken his uh, script for Two Mules for Sister Sarah and kind of turned it into a pseudo spaghetti western, and uh, so so basically the the plot of this one is um, Charlton Heston is this sort of old aging lawman, or he might be retired. He is retired, uh, yeah, because yeah. it's Michael Parks who plays the sheriff. Yeah, yeah. So he's yeah he's a retired lawman, and and uh, James Coburn is this half Navajo um, guy, <laughs> which once again. Love James Coburn, does not strike me as half Navajo. And he looks about <laughs> as Navajo as I do. Yeah. So, or, or, yeah, or Franco Nero. They so uh, James Coburn escapes uh, off this chain gang um, with these guys, and he's basically going to get uh, revenge on Charlton Heston's character named Burgade, and um, and so he ends up kidnapping his daughter. And then so Charlton Heston, you know, uh, he he goes out to, uh, you know, try to get her back. As one should because uh, Barbara Hershey in this is so beautiful that it almost makes your like face melt off even watching her. Or maybe it's just because I got a thing for Barbara Hershey, but I'm a big, <laughs> big fan of hers. But it makes me just like scream and agony and anguish while watching. I was like, you're so fucking hot. What the fuck is going on but anyway it's a, a nice little bit of feminine energy in these movies where there's not a lot of it in this crop of films yeah oh yeah for sure for sure i think this is a movie that for me gets less interesting as it goes along i i i think the opening scene is is great uh um, oh, when they're busting out of the chain gang yeah and 
and it's and you know like Coburn uh, stabs a dude with a with a railroad spike, and uh, they blast a dude with a shotgun and everything. It's 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 really um, way more. It's it, the visuals. Uh, they it, it just pops off the screen way better than most most of uh, McLaughlin's movies. Yeah, I mean, like when I saw Shenandoah, Shenan Shenandoah, Shenandoah, I was like, all right, that's that's fine, but I'll I'll never revisit it. It just it felt just very old fashioned for that. I don't mind watching old fashioned movies, depending upon the time in which they come out. But it was like a mid sixties movie that felt like it should have been like an early forties movie. Yeah, I I feel as it goes along. He, you know, he he starts trying to do some peck and paw sort of slow motion, but it just he just holds these shots so long that it zaps like the intent. Once it becomes the cat and mouse game, uh, it just the suspense kind of drains out. He doesn't handle the suspense very well, and um, it just yeah, it it just stops it just stops being interesting for me. Um, I guess like there are a couple scenes in the latter part that I liked. Um, I like this whole idea of using the girl as bait to try to lure Charlton Heston out of his hiding place because James Coburn knows he's there. So he basically turns her loose and sends a couple of rapists chasing her down the hill in slow motion. And then it's the greenhorn that Charlton Heston didn't even want to bring along who has to basically knock out Charlton Heston to prevent him from giving away their hiding place. And I liked seeing at the very end when Charlton Heston and James Coburn are basically fighting at point blank range, <laughs> shooting the fuck out of, each, out of each other. Yeah, yeah, no, that that, that, was that part was pretty. Yeah, like Ted, he tries to knock the rifle aside. He gets shot twice by a rifle, then twice by a pistol, and it's so hardcore. But as Coburn moves in for the kill. Uh, Heston just shoots him right through the center and he falls off a cliff and then, then the movie's pretty much the movie's over <laughs> like, yeah you know. it just ends that's it yeah. but, uh, but I think the early scenes are more are, are fun I love Charlton Heston and, and Michael Parks like uh, Michael Parks is just, yeah, such an unsung hero in so many ways We um, when he died actor Bill Sage came on the podcast to talk about his relationship. He was a fan first and then got to work with him late in life. And so Marcus and Bill Sage and I did this episode just celebrating Michael Parks' career. But yeah, he's obviously one of the coolest parts of From Dust Till Dawn, which is where a lot of people know him from. And he was really good in uh, Red State. And yeah, he's just a, a marvelous actor. And that's, But he's still you know young and studly and beautiful in uh, Last Hard Men. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think I've, I've ever watched it or maybe I watched part of it and gave up. I think that's what happened. But I want to go back and rewatch his um, sequel to Outlaw Josie Wales that he stars in and directed. <laughs> oh, I, I've, I have not seen that. Yeah. Um, I think I might have rented it on VHS 20 years ago and gave up on it. But I I, I kind of want to rewatch it uh, just because, uh, uh, yeah, it just might be interesting. Michael Parks is Josie Wales. Yeah, but uh, so th- so that stuff is fun, you know. When they when the outlaws are breaking into the place and getting new clothes and stuff, and then a phone rings and they flip out. It. Yeah, yeah, because they they've been like they've been out in the middle of nowhere for a long time. It shows how how wild and untamed they are. That they like little bits of technology totally freak them out. Yeah, and the movie and the movie does kind of well at least at the beginning, uh, playing with that turn of the century thing, which is, you know, that's an obvious peck and paw theme, um, that, that he, uh, you know, uh, yeah, many have outlived their times. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, um, 
man, once once they get those new outfits, you know, I, I mean, I can <laughs> I know I always complain about costuming. And for me, it's not necessarily always about accuracy, but man, they look the the new clothes they get. They look so silly. Like Jorge Rivera, who pops up again, is like wearing like this like almost looks like a t-shirt it's like underwear it's like short sleeve like underwear undershirt with a poncho and then like they're they're all they've all got like these like real tight bandanas just tied tight on their necks and they look like charles nelson riley and they like got like just like long underwear shirts and and james coburn's wearing this weird straw hat and they just it's like these guys do not look cool (laughs) That well, becomes the kind of an issue. Yeah, for I mean, me. it's like once you've seen the bad guys in Once Upon a Time in the West or the characters in the Wild Bunch, they all look like such total badasses. So it, they, the the bar has been set very high. Yeah, it just looks like a cobbled together thing. Like, uh, like don't don't give James Coburn a fucking straw hat. Like, come on, <laughs> like that doesn't look cool. And and none of the guys, they just uh, it, it looks weird. They all they 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 just are you know, wearing leather vests and stuff. It just doesn't, it just doesn't come off. Like some of the, or some of the costumes that they have look real good, like with their bowler hats and, you know, their, uh, their shirts with the sleeve garters and stuff like that really gives you a, a feel for the era. But then, then they just got them wearing, who, who's going to run around in a bunch of long underwear shirts. doesn't really make a whole, <laughs> whole lot of sense, but they're just things that, that kind of, the the McLaughlin hackery kind of comes in uh, in in certain ways. Yeah, McLaughlin uh, never came within a country mile of being as good as Howard Hawks or Anthony Mann or John Ford or Bud Bedecker or any of these guys that where they were operating at roughly the same time. I feel like if you can't get those other guys, but you're making a western, then give Andrew v. McLaughlin a call. But no one's talking about him when it comes to discussing like the auteur theory. Yeah. So, but he made um, a lot of movies. I mean, he definitely was on the scene he worked with a lot of interesting people like i'm sure if i sat down and had a beer with andrew v mclaughlin like oh my god this guy is fascinating like he's worked with all these incredible people he's just one of those guys though who never made a really truly remarkable i mean he directed 59 movies but he did like the tv movie the dirty dozen the next mission uh a lot of tv and yeah just see he feels a little bit hacky a little tv ish but yeah he started his career in the late 50s and he just, I, mean, I guess Hellfighters is one of his big ones, but I, I do not include him in the in the mix when I'm discussing all my, I guess maybe maybe Chisholm's his biggest one, but I don't include him in the mix when I'm discussing my, the, the Western directors that I love from that era. Yeah, well, his father was an actor, uh, Victor McLaughlin, uh, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was part of, you know, Ford's Yeah, John Ford's inner circle. Of actors. Um yeah, he he also kind of uh, he would do um, he always be doing these sequels to like he did a sequel to a TV movie sequel to like Bridge on the River Kwai. Ooh, and, uh, that, that that's and, a sequel that does not need to be made. <laughs> yeah, and of course the Dirty Dozen sequel, and he did a sequel to Cross of Iron Breakthrough with. Um, well, I'm sitting here, Return from the River Kwai, 1989. Holy cow! Yeah, and he so and uh, but yeah, he did Breakthrough with. Uh, Richard Burton in the uh, Sergeant Steiner role, um, so which I have not seen Breakthrough, but um, I've heard it's not good. 
Um, apparently, it's the first appear, uh, screen appearance of Christoph Waltz, though. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, apart from his TV appearance where he's dressed like a clown and singing songs, which is <laughs> the clip that Tony Stella always loves to share. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, and this one, he's just kind of a just young officer smoking. He doesn't actually do anything. I don't know if he's a medic or something. I, I watched the clip, but... Uh, but yeah, no, I haven't watched that film, but, uh, but no, but I mean, overall it's not a bad movie. Uh, it's definitely, it's totally uh, it watchable. Definitely I mean, for people who love watching movies with these old timers doing their thing, there's just a certain vibe to these tough guy movies from the sixties and seventies. That's totally gone now. Like the eighties obviously brought in, you know, the greasy hair and the, the oiled up muscles and the explosions. And it was just, that was the end of the gritty tough guy period pretty much and in the 60s and 70s you have a lot of them last hard man is not by any stretch of the imagination one of the strongest but if you love these actors definitely give it a go yeah and apparently i guess uh, for, uh when it was first submitted to the mpaa it got an x rating wow and uh which and they didn't actually even have to cut anything they just resubmitted it and then the, you know that happens like a lot of times especially even like in the development process someone will give you notes for your screenplay you walk away for a couple of months and you can send them the exact same draft and like oh my god like you did such a good job incorporating all my notes it's like yep i, I thought long and hard about it <laughs> yeah i guess the mpa's note was like well can you have less threats of violence <laughs> and they were like uh no <laughs> so so it wasn't even necessarily about the violence shown, but just like threats of violence, like such a nebulous thing. But the other thing is that the, the movie was originally going to be called uh, Brigade, and it was a last minute uh, uh, studio exec was like, no, we'll call it The Last Hard Men. And I guess all the actors, Brian Garfield, everyone was not happy with that name. And if you imagine that the movie went out with an X rating called The Last Hard Men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, probably, back in Tinto Brass territory. Yeah, exactly. Get the wrong idea of, uh, of what it is. But uh, yeah, so, you know, it's, uh, it's good. I mean, it's, well, it's decent. Yeah, it's I think decent, solid, whatever non-committal phrase you can come up with. Uh, I enjoyed it. I, I'm glad I saw it, but I'm not going to be revisiting it anytime soon. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So. Well, let's talk about one of your honorable mentions where it seems like even among the honorable mentions, this one didn't rank particularly high, but we have another spaghetti western from this period, Manaja or Manaha, a.k.a. A Man Called Blade from 1977, starring the Franco Nero kind of, I guess, poor man's Franco Nero, Mauricio Merrily, who people might remember from the tough ones who I talked about in my Umberto Lenzi episode a few weeks back. But I guess one of the most redeeming aspects of this movie is that he likes wielding axes to like chop off people's hands and fight dogs <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. And we've got yet another score from Guido and Mauricio DeAngelis, the people he did the score for, Kayoma. So if you love the score from Kayoma and you need more of it in your life, A Man Called Blade is screaming your name. Yeah, I definitely – I think this, this uh, score is a little less shrill the guy singing on this sounds more of like a, almost like a, well, there's a deep voice guy and then the higher pitched guy who almost, almost sounds a little bit like David Bowie or something. Uh, but uh, this is this is like, I mean, I guess you would count it among the offspring of Peckinpah because of the slow motion violence and squibs and you know squibs were you know a thing that most spaghetti westerns didn't have. You know, after Peckinpah, they kind of had to incorporate them. Um, but it's really more so a takeoff on Kaoma than it is uh, something that is really taking from 
um, Peg and Paul, and it's not bad. It's 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 actually pretty watchable. It has that same surreal, dreamlike atmosphere. Uh, lots of slow motion, lots of fog machines. Um, it's from the director you know. of Slave of the Cannibal God, a movie I've never seen apart from some highlights, but it has one of the most erotic posters of all time featuring Ursula Andress, but it's the, the Sergio Martino, a director who's he's one of these – I mean, I, every time I do an episode about Italian genre films, I always bring this up, but once you start trying to learn about Italian genre film – it's in, there's no way to stop because you constantly are finding these new people like, oh my God, who's this guy? He's got like 70 movies. Like, are these good? Do I need to see these? Like, I don't know. But he's another one of those guys who's made all dozens of fucking movies. And it's, I guess I'm going to go to my grave, not ever really having like a full grasp of Italian genre film. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is, uh, interesting. The sort of this, this, uh, the, the latter day, um, spaghetti westerns uh you start to see um the hippie influences kind of coming in um with corbucci's the specialist uh starts to incorporate it uh, sunny and jed starts to have a hippie-ish sort of feel to it um uh i know leone produced one i don't know if it's the one the genius two dupes or whatever he did one with terry he produced one with terrence hill that opens in monument valley brilliant opening scene but then the rest of it is just horrible it's a you know anyway uh it's it was a remake of the same film that 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 most recent uh jesus rolls okay uh based off of so you start seeing these weird sort of hippie-ish spaghetti westerns you get fulci's uh four of the apocalypse which then has I've seen. Sort of yeah, that, i saw that one yeah uh which has uh another singer songwriter kind of soundtrack and then kaoma and then menagea um, but, uh, or Manaha, I don't know how to say it, <laughs> but, uh, so anyway, but this is definitely, uh, in Kaoma territory worth watching. Um, especially but- if you like the really savage, gruesome violence of Italian horror, like there's a scene where he's buried up to his neck and it looks, it's almost like something out of like bone tomahawk where they have a bone positioned under his jaw to stab him if he lowers his head so he's constantly have his neck craned back and his eyelids are pinned back with these little spikes and he's like the movie with richard harris he spends a lot of this movie kind of blind or getting his vision back but they've got his eyelids pinned back so it's a pretty ruthless little torture scene so if you like westerns that go to the dark side then this is this is your one to go to yeah or then there's like a massacre intercut with like a can-can dance you know so you you know uh people getting shot to hell while these ladies are kicking their legs up in the air and stuff um so yeah it's 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 a watchable one but i i don't know how much uh you know sergio martino was uh studying peckinpah or just you know going off of uh kaoma which came out i think the previous year so totally fair well we've mentioned this other um one that's one of the Peckinpah bastards before when we did our episode about Jesse James, but anything you want to say about the long riders in terms of its debt that it owes to Peckinpah? Cause obviously that final battle scene, like, you know, basically the great, was it great Northfield, Minnesota raid, like the, that you see at the end of it, it clearly they've seen some Peckinpah film, but Walter Hill dynamite director in his own right. So I feel like Walter Hill is definitely making his own movie with that. But um, any any additional thoughts that you want to add about the Long Riders? 
um, no, not really. I think I think we I think we touched upon it. Um, I think that I think that uh, I mean. I just like how in that scene with the, the very end where you can almost kind of hear the bullets go boom and then it'll kind of hit. It really yeah. gives you a sense of anticipation right before something will hit and then you'll see like Keith Carradine's like cheek explode as a bullet goes flying through his face. I yeah, I I think that I mean, I think that Walter Hill is his, is obviously definitely his own man, but he is I think all of his movies are indebted to Peckinpah and, and Howard uh, Hawks. He was, a, he was a giant Howard Hawks acolyte. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, but uh, I think Long Riders is is uh, the most obvious one alongside uh, Extreme Prejudice, which is kind of a modern update of the Wild Bunch in a way. Um, so, and, and the end gunfight in Extreme Prejudice is basically the ending of the wild bunch, but just a modern version. You've seen extreme prejudice, right? I have indeed. I did an episode about, uh, I think it was with John Cribbs back in early days of the podcast where we did a, uh, a giant episode about uh, Walter Hill's career. And I loved extreme prejudice. It was, it was insanely cool. But I think my favorite scene in that is when a uh, rip torn comes by Nick Nolte's office and Nick Nolte's talking about all the things that he used to get away with, like smoking pot and things like that. And rip torn's like, you did like, I didn't catch you. He's like, no nah, man, we wouldn't let you catch us. And you know, some of that stuff I th- found to be hysterical and extreme prejudice. Yeah, so I'd say in terms of the long riders, I guess uh, uh, I think I, I, as I kind of touched on on before, I, I think that I think in a in a way, um, Walter Hill's sort of um, he has a similar kind of obsession with like uh, these like laconic men who are just no nonsense and good at their jobs sort of thing. He shares that with Michael Mann in a way, um, but. I think sometimes that is not the best fit um, with uh, a, the Peckinpah style. And I think that's maybe one of the deficiencies of the long riders is that if you don't have a strong lead, uh, it can, it can just make the, it could just not fully, not fully work um, the as good as it could. So my deficiency the thing that I find as a deficiency in the long riders is I don't think James Keach is a, is a great lead and um, you have to have someone with you need like a real multi level personality. So yeah. And I really, off. I enjoy the long riders. I've seen it many times, but I totally agree that as much as I like the Keaches, you, it, I mean, once again, Movie stars and actors are different different things, and a star is a star, and you know it. What you let, when you first lay out, even if they suck at acting, like someone I wouldn't say suck at acting. Like there's some stars who are just natural personas, and they're bigger than life. And sometimes it is really helpful to have someone who's bigger than life at the heart of your movie. Yeah, 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 definitely. And so um, for me, yeah, I I, I I like the Long Riders, but outside of the Peckinpah influence, um, I don't. I don't really know what Walter Hill is doing with that film that separates it from Peckinpah, you know, whereas with other movies, he does things that are, that are different. I don't know if there's, I don't know what he, I don't know what he's bringing to it that 
Um, you got that killer Raikuta score, and then you got the gimmick of all the actors who are actually brothers. And I like a lot of the scenes with like the relationship between uh, David Carradine and the hooker that he's involved with. And I enjoy just weird little moments that aren't even part of the plot where. Uh, the guy who played Ajax in the Warriors when he uh, what's it um, what's that actor's name? James Remar. Yeah, James Remar. When they had the knife fight, when they're like got the like the cloth between their teeth, and and then yeah. even I feel like it's got a tons of cool scenes. Is it as Some good as the Wild Bunch? Better. Nope, but I've seen it several times now, and I always have a a fine time checking it out. Oh yeah, I mean, I think I definitely think it's enjoyable, but I, I think that with a lot of Hills other movies, like you know, like the Warriors or like. 48 hours oh god you love 48 hours or, or hard times like uh he's he's put he's bringing stuff to it that aren't necessarily indebted to peck and paw but i guess i just uh, i just when i look at the long riders uh obviously like the right cooter score is amazing and the and the way it's shot is amazing and uh there's so many things about the movie that are that are amazing but i just go well what where what is he doing how is he what's he's How's he subverting the Peck and Paw influence here? And I just, I don't, I don't really see it. So. For this group of outlaws, everything in the West was for the taking. Out of here. And with the robbing of every bank. They rode beyond the law. Let me see your leg, boy. It's just a scratch. But now, Grap, their bloodthirsty leader, has gone too far. Maybe we should tend to his wounds. I see it. Leave him. We never leave nobody. And his men have turned against him. And left him for dead. That was their first mistake. Soon to be their last. Now he's vowed revenge. You think you can stop me from taking out anyone in center? Damn, I won't. One by one. We all gonna die. Hunting them down. It's poor. He's not human anymore. You know, you killed him and he came back. Well, I guess nobody lives forever, right? The last outlaw. Starring Mickey Rourke of Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man and Desperate Hours. Dermot Mulroney of Young Guns and Point of No Return. Keith David of Platoon. John C. McGinley of Born on the Fourth of July. Steve Buscemi of Reservoir Dogs. And Ted Levine of Silence of the Lambs. In the action-packed western... You're the last, so you made the best of it. The Last Outlaw. Mm. Hang on. Choking on my own uh, saliva and spit from this espresso I just drank. All right. We are back. Uh, Quick apology to the listeners. I actually lost like the last 25 minutes of the podcast. Whenever I'm recording, if you've been on before, you know that I break it into pieces and I'm constantly doing exports just because I don't want to get to the end of an episode and realize that I've lost the entire thing. After hundreds of episodes of taking that precaution, it paid off because we only lost 25 minutes as opposed to like all three hours 
But we're now we're going to be talking about The Last Outlaw <laughs> from 1993. So we're not going to pretend as if we're discussing this for the first time because trying to pretend as if you're fresh when you're not doesn't work. But we took a break. We took a, had a quick snack, some caffeine, some booze, etc. So we're ready to roll. Last movie on our list. So <laughs> Mr. Lambert, Last Outlaw. What are your thoughts? I've got to apologize to the listeners because I'm sure they were like, we could have lost that 25 minutes. We were good. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, but, thank uh, you. We're full. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so The Last Outlaw. Uh, the Last Outlaw is um, an HBO Western from the early 90s uh, from Jeff Murphy, the director of Young Guns 2, uh, Free Jack, Under Siege 2, um, and uh, a few other... Dante's uh, Peak. Oh, Dante's Peak, yes. And then also, I think, uh, what, second unit on the Lord of the Rings trilogy or something, I think he did. Ooh, uh, I don't know. Yeah, second assistant, nine. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. All three flicks. So, um, and it was written by the by the infamous Eric Red. Um, yeah, I, um, I had to break the news to... Uh, James, that uh, Eric read um, in the er- like early like in two thousand year two thousand, I believe, uh, crashed his jeep into a bar, and there's the possibility that he did it on purpose. And so he's a very uh, infamous person. I think there's an LA Weekly article. Everyone should look that up uh, about Eric Red and that whole thing. So he's a controversial individual, but uh, he wrote The Hitcher. He wrote Near Dark. Um, and he wrote this uh, Western, which is sort of a, in a way, a remake of The Wild Bunch mixed in with The Hitcher is how I kind of describe it. Um, but uh, so, yeah, Eric Red, I, I've really never liked any of his scripts. I think that he has such big, like, logical loopholes. He just kind of allows whatever he wants to happen without any kind of semblance of logic or reality but even in a sense like i think he just he violates the rules of his own world i think is my issue with a lot of his a lot of his work and i think if there is quality in any of the movies made out of his stuff it's usually because the directors are good or it seems like Catherine bigelow really enjoys work on them because i do enjoy near dark and blue steel but maybe Catherine bigelow helps him um kind of protect himself from his worst impulses yeah, you know, I, I have to rewatch Near Dark. It's something I haven't seen in probably about 25 years. Well, as a Western buff, it's one of the closest things we have to a Western vampire flick. So I, I, I think it's, it definitely has a cool vibe or a cool style that's very rare. Yeah, I remember liking the massacre in the bar or restaurant that's or whatever. That's the big but... showcase of the movie. Everything that happens before or after is kind of almost irrelevant in comparison. Like it, it, when it comes to showcasing your talent of both your performance and your director, that's the big scene of the movie, without a doubt. Without that scene, I don't know if people would regard Near Dark nearly as fondly. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, but so this is, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a remake of The Wild Bunch in a way. Um, it's a little bit of a takeoff of the James Gang. I think that I do think The Long Riders was probably an influence too. Um, you know, the, the whole movie they're singing, I'm a good old rebel, uh, which I think, uh, with a bunch of actors who 
couldn't feel less southern if you <laughs> went out of your way to cast the least southern actor. I mean, I love Mickey Rourke. I love uh, Steve Buscemi. There's, I mean, the two of the best actors of the last like forty years. Neither one of them strikes me as particularly southern. Yeah. So, so, so basically, what happens is th- is this gang goes into town. This gang of uh, um, ex Confederates who have basically continued the war, robbing banks and everything. They go in this town, but the jig is up. Uh, everyone knows that it's them, so they're basically planning to trap them. It's a trap. Very similar to uh, the Wild Bunch or the Long Riders. Um, um, you know, it's it's very stupid that they're ri- that they're riding into town wearing their Confederate clothes ten years after yeah, the so war. It's like dressed up like, like pirates when you're trying to like you know <laughs> pull up next to a ship. Yeah, so uh, um, you know, it was illegal to actually wear Confederate grays uh, post Civil War. So to do that, you would make a target of yourself immediately. But um, so anyway, so they so they go in, and uh, Dermot Mulroney is uh, sort of this the kind of second in command. He's been riding with with uh, Mickey Rourke's character for for a decade, for uh, at least a decade. Um, and, uh, Mickey Rourke is gonna, he wants to kill these cashiers or whatever. And Dermot Mulroney's character is like, you know, what do you mean? Like, uh, which strikes me as so weird because it's like, he's been riding with this guy since the war and they've been robbing places, probably shooting things up. He, he just now realizes yeah, he knows his modus operandi at this point. Yeah. Uh, so, so that, so that's weird. But so anyway, they blow up the back of the place to escape one there's a shootout. One guy gets injured, and uh, a posse goes and 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 chases him. And so the so kind of the, the the dramatic crux of the film is that this guy who is injured and can't ride anymore, Mickey Rourke's character wants to leave him behind, but Dermot Mulroney doesn't want that to happen. So he ends up um, uh, injuring Mickey Rourke's character um, to save this guy, and he becomes the de facto leader. Mickey Rourke gets captured by the posse, um, and he is now used uh, as this guy to kind of track them, uh, a la Deke Thornton in The Wild Bunch. Um, But he ends up killing the leader of the posse, and then now he's the leader, um, uh, and he's chasing down his old gang. But while doing that, he's sort of trying to teach a lesson to Dermot Mulroney's character about what it is to be yeah, a leader. It's almost like he wants to torment him by placing him in a situation where he'll be forced to make the same decisions that Mickey Rourke has made so that he realizes the burden of leadership and therefore his criticism of his old boss was unwarranted. It's almost like a way of saying, like like a really elaborate way of saying, see, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, and that is kind of... Uh, so, so it's sort of... Um, it's sort of like a, you know, a 14-year-old boy's um, version of the Wild Bunch. So all the depth, um, everything about uh, you know friendship and betrayal and honor is kind of switched out to, like you said, <laughs> told you so. And so, and so that is kind of the narr- the narrative uh, uh, through line for for the rest of the film. But um, uh, Jeff Murphy. Uh, is uh, you know uh, a a very uh, solid director at least visually. 
Um, I don't think he ever got a great script to work with, but he's he's still good and he 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 handles the visuals well. Um, he's got a great cast. Uh, Keith yeah, I mean David. the cast is killer. I mean, I love seeing Keith David in just about anything. John C. McGinley is one of the most likable personas in movies over the last like 30, 40 years. Ted Levine is southern as hell, with got that great accent, and it's just yeah. But Mickey Rourke, who's one of the most dynamic actors imaginable, is almost like this stupid cartoon character, both in the way he talks and the way he appears, and it just it's so strange that you can have like basically hiring like the Marlon Brando of his generation and get such a strange final product. I just feel like he was horribly miscast in this film. Cast him in Nine and a Half Weeks, cast him in Angel Heart, cast him in, you know, uh, fucking Diner, like all that kind of stuff. He, Mickey Rourke needs to be in and around cities. And as you mentioned before, he was already in Heaven's Gate, but I feel like he's a city slicker. He's not, he doesn't strike me as somebody who's been living off the land for a decade. Well, well, yeah, I mean, and I think the Marlon Brando comparison is pretty apt because I think Marlon Brando faltered with Westerns, and I love One-Eyed Jacks, but in terms of a performance, I also think that his One-Eyed Jacks performance is a little off, and it has a strange sort of southern accent that is just, um, you know... there. It's, it's almost as bad as his English accent that he did with the Mutiny on the Bounty in the, in the early 60s, yeah, which is one of the yeah, worst accents yeah. in movie history. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is about um, t- actors who aren't southern, like, they always seem to settle on sort of this uh, aristocratic sort of like plantation owner sort of George. <laughs> they all like, want to be Scarlett you know, O'Hara. They all want to be God gone with the wind. <laughs> yeah. They, they always, they always feel like they're like uh, doing like a foghorn leghorn, like corrupt, like politician, like white suited, like, sir. Yeah. You I know. told you I'm a man of honor and la 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 la. And it's like, Oh my God. Like, yeah. But that I think of all the, of all the Southern accents of which there are many, I think that one is the hardest to, to pull off it's like why not do the one with the harder r's like that that's a little easier you yeah, know like, do like, uh, like people who instead of saying like wash they say wash and things like that yeah so so anyway he's he's doing one of those or instead uh, of which pen they say work. pen yeah that's one of the big words if you, if you ask somebody to say pen and they say pen you can definitely narrow down some of the spots in the south they might be from so yeah so that doesn't do him any favors he he's kind of talk. He talks in a way that's I think supposed to be kind of cool, but it just comes. It just it, it, it doesn't come off well. And and really, the biggest problem is just his appearance. Um, and uh, you know, this was when he started uh, getting his facelifts and all that. And he he has this thin pencil thin mustache. He's got pencil-thin little eyebrows, like he shaved his eyebrows, and he's got almost like, almost uh, like a like a chola, <laughs> like early '90s chola. But he's got the eyebrows. weird eyes. When people start getting start fucking with their face with blades, they get the weird eyes where it's like it's not old, it's not young, it's just weird looking, and it just looks really unnatural. Yeah, and he just yeah, so he just, and he's not helped because he's wearing like tight leather pants and uh he looks like he's got a, a thick layer of pancake makeup so he just doesn't he, he he's he's honestly hard to look at and uh he definitely doesn't come off as as a hard-boiled like tough uh 
badass war veteran. Um, he he's like he seems like one step removed from like glam rock or something. Yeah. And so it 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 really doesn't work. And and uh, um, as I as I said like earlier, uh, if you just imagine this role with Ted Levine, who is someone who feels really authentic, yep. who could be frightening as hell. I mean, it, w- it would have been perfect. And he's great in his s- smaller role as, you know, this uh, <laughs> this this guy who's just kind of, you know, flipping out the whole time. But but man, had he had he played that part, it, it would have worked so much better. But um, so so that that's a big issue. Uh, Dermot Mulroney, who I like, uh, he's not given much to work with. And he's not really playing to his strengths, so he feels he feels kind of like the handsome, kind of like a pretty boy character. Yeah, knight in shining armor with the with the high moral fiber. But I liked him a lot more in Young Guns when he had like dip and chew spit dri- dripping down his chin. Yeah, or if he was able to do his about Schmidt uh, mulleted yeah. <laughs> character, just a total yeah. shit kicker. Yeah, I mean, the moment you've got that business in the front, party in the back, haircut, then you're in special territory. <laughs> yeah. So, and 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 the movie just also isn't isn't done a lot of favors be, uh, by the fact that it is ripping off the Wild Bunch. But what was a thing to show um, the leadership skills of pike bishop because he knew that in order to protect the whole he had to sacrifice uh one part um that becomes the dramatic crux so so now you're supposed to be on the side of Dermot Mulroney's character but he's actually completely impractical so you're just sort of like well you know <laughs> they're not doing themselves favors by lifting so much from the wild bunch um with such a thin character, you know? Yeah. So, well, yeah, it's just like if, I mean, some of the best beats from the wild bunch are basically recreated for this, but then you see them making decisions that are, that fall short of what the wild bunch was willing to do. And yeah, I mean, there's, but it's funny how I do, I'm kind of keep rooting for this nineties nostalgia craze to get started because I'm kind of tired of eighties nostalgia at this point. And I think at a certain point we're going to start Picking through the, the the wreckage of the '90s and checking out it's, for westerns, it's such a strange decade where you have things like Tombstone and uh, and Un- Unforgiven, but you've also got things like like this or Young Guns Two, and no one's going to say the '90s was like the great heyday of the American western, but it is fun seeing this stuff for the because I had never seen this before, seeing it for the first time. It does take me back to an era where I was 17 years old, seeing all these actors. So I did enjoy checking it out, and it's got some decent shootouts, and it's got that ridiculous moment where Steve, Steve Buscemi's face gets just completely, utterly destroyed from a, a shot from up on up on high. Yeah, so, so it's got so it's got it's got some moments, but the big one that you mentioned is um, basically the Full Metal Jacket scene where you've got a guy being slowly shot to pieces like twelve or thirteen times by high-powered rifles because they're trying to lure people out to help. And it's a, the mirror image of the scene earlier where basically he's forcing Mulroney to, to realize, okay, this is a situation where you have to be willing to put your own friend out of his misery, cut your losses, and it's really trying to hammer home this idea that you have to be able to make the tough decisions if you're going to have the, you know, like that old expression goes, heavy lies the crown. Yeah, and so 
Um, but but it, but it, I guess for me, it's like uh, if that's if that's supposed to be the point uh, of the film or the message, it's like, well, what is the point? It, it, it's just um, and, and that and that's kind of an issue with all these. Well, not all these, but most of them. Uh, um, you go, well, what is the point? What what is the point of this movie? <laughs> you know, uh, what wh- why it's not it's not a, an actual like exploration of leadership, and and it's also kind of the same thing with like what's the point of like the hitcher? Like, uh, you know, he wants him to kill him, but he can't do it, and so he's going to kill all these other people until he does, and it's like. I it just feel it feels like uh, edgy for the sake of edginess, but nothing, nothing really behind it. But having said that, because it's pretty well shot and it has decent enough production values and it has uh, a lot of gory, bloody scenes, um, it is it is an enjoyable movie. And I remember stumbling upon it. Um, and going, oh, TV, you know, made for TV Western, you know, it's probably not going to be good. And 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 enjoying it. And then once, yeah, once Steve Buscemi's head just fucking exploded, which makes me laugh every time I see it. It's timed so perfectly. I was like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of into this. So, so well, at some point we're gonna have to do a deep dive into interesting made-for-TV westerns and also standalone episodes from shows like The Rifleman or The Westerner or Gunsmoke. Like, I, I barely know my uh, my westerns made-for-TV, but there's just so many thousands upon thousands of episodes made. And every once in a while, I'll come across an interview with someone like Tarantino where he'll mention one specific episode where I think to myself, "Oh, but well, that sounds very interesting." So it'd be fun to find the real gems amongst the hundreds, if not thousands of episodes of kind of interchangeable plot lines. So seeing this is kind of whetting my appetite to learn more about Westerns for TV. Yeah. So, and uh, one of the other things that I kind of want to touch upon, and, and this is kind of an issue with a lot of these. I We did touch upon uh, the score in Kaoma. It's that uh, the, the scores are usually so uninspired they're either cobbled from other movies like the Deadly Trackers, just taking its score directly from the Wild Bunch, or uh, or the Culpepper Cattle Company. What that was they, that took something from like the Flim Flam Man. Yeah, right? they just stole the Jerry Goldsmith score um, from another movie entirely. And then uh, same thing with the Last Hard Man. It was cobbled together from previous scores. It just seems like a weird thing. But like with this one, it just sort of has this droning sort of harmonica guitar strumming like just generic sort of western score and that's always kind of a disappointment when someone has the opportunity to do a western score and they just go well we'll just get some harmonica and some strumming and it's it's like oh man you you had such an opportunity to do something and that definitely contributes yeah, every to creative a- decision on a movie so. is an opportunity for greatness and if you phone it in you're diminishing your overall film yeah so um but yeah, and then like I said before, Keith David, you know, uh, so we've got him, a black guy, and and a and a group of uh, uh, you know, um, southern boys, unreconstructed mm-hmm. un- um, Confederates. Um, so it's like, well, 
so what's going on there? Yeah, like in and, uh, what was it? Ride with the Devil is that the one that we talked about? That, yeah, yeah. Like that one felt like they really were trying to earn this idea of a black guy fighting on the fight of the on the side of the South due to his friendship with Tobey Maguire's character. This is just like, well, why are you there? <laughs> and <laughs> why are you so loyal to these guys? Yeah, because that because that 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 wasn't completely unheard of. Um, it did happen. Um, there are examples of it, but yeah, yeah. And, and then, you know, and then, so the characters are somewhat racist to him. Like Mickey Rourke's character is racist to him, but it's like, so he's been riding with these guys for like 10 years and, you know, so there's nothing explored. It just seems like maybe that's just to soften Dermot Mulroney's character. I, I, I honestly I honestly don't know, but I, and I also don't really like. I think it's lazy to just make him into voodoo, and his name's Lovecraft. I don't. I think that's pretty groan-inducing. Um, so well, it seems like there's writers on those guys like Joe Esterhaus where their emotional maturity kind of stopped around age 14, but they discovered like cocaine and alcohol and money and everything just kind of got amplified <laughs> as they became a filmmaker. Yeah. And so, and, and this one is, you know, in a way this one almost can play like a comedy because it feels like the two dumbest groups of men, um, <laughs> against each other. You have this really stupid group of outlaws and then you've got these this posse tracking them, and they've got the head of the bank with them for no reason. I don't know how, why he has to be there. And then there's a scene where these the posse just starts arguing, and then they just start shooting each other. This one guy goes, fuck you. And then they just slaughter each other. And you're just like, you know, had they played it more for comedy, it might have actually been even more enjoyable because it's like uh, you're just watching – Kind of a movie of just dumb people killing each other. Yeah, well, it's, that's kind of the definition of camp. It's like failed seriousness. And if you're trying to make a hardcore, gritty Western in the spirit of Sam Peckinpah and you fall short, it turns into kind of a campy mess. But it's not campy enough where it becomes wildly enjoyable, where you have like that unintentional brilliance of campiness. So it's kind of stuck in, in between those two worlds. And yeah, once once... Once you've got these grizzly old dudes, and I think a, a lot of it boils down to just a lot of these old Western directors, they fought in World War II. I mean, they were they were hard, hard men. And when they told these stories about outlaws and robbers and cowboys, etc., they just gave them an edge that it's hard to have if you're just some kid who grew up in the suburbs who just happens to like Westerns. So achieving that level of toughness is very, very tough or very, very challenging. Well, and I honestly think that is uh... – the case with um, most of Eric Red's writing, I, I, I feel that he's um, he's he's that same sort of uh, writer, um, but not on the same level as a uh, as a Tarantino or a Shane Black, where his he's making movies about movies, and he's not really making movies about his own experiences. It's more of how am I going to mix in um, these genres or put a spin on the genre? Or, you know what I mean? Um, which is not a deficiency because that's also what Sergio Leone did. Sergio Leone was a guy who made movies about movies. But but that's that's what I see in Eric Red's work. And 
you know, and that's why he names a character Loomis or why he has a guy called Lovecraft or or why this is just basically uh, a retread of the Wild Bunches plot because he he doesn't uh, it, it's it's just you know it's basically just postmodern you know you know in a way. But in spite of all of our criticisms of it, I feel like for people who like these cast members, it's worth a look, and its flaws can be overlooked if you're having fun with it. It's just not one of those movies where I would say, hey, if you're trying to introduce somebody to the Western genre and you're trying to turn them into a fan, let's start with The Last Outlaw. But if you've seen thousands of Westerns and you're still hungry for more and you're looking under every stone that's out there and you're like, all right, well, I haven't really seen that many Westerns from the 1990s. Last Outlaw is, like I said, it's it's not terrible. It's just, it's it's hard to celebrate and I just feel like it trips over its own feet. And I think it, for me that all boils down to just Mickey Rourke being so ridiculous at the heart of the story that it makes it very, very difficult for me to take anything else seriously. Yeah, well, I guess the way to say it is like um, if you want to see kind of a, a, kind of a Young Guns, a nihilistic Young Guns, yep. <laughs> for, for better or worse, uh, that, you know, that is that is what it is. And uh you know, as I was saying before, it's sloppy. The end, the end duel doesn't make sense. What what Dermot Mulroney's plan is? The end line is just out of nowhere. The voiceover that pops in and out, it just it feels like Eric Red wrote it in an afternoon. I don't. It doesn't seem like there were multiple drafts of this one. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's worth seeing just to just to watch some really great. Uh, character actors dress up like cowboys and then shoot the fucking hell out of each other. So. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm trying to remember some of the things we talked about in our first take of this part of the conversation, but I did want to throw out there just the idea again of you and Tony Stella picking one movie to talk about uh, when collaborating. I mean, just I guess it was after his most recent appearance where he said he can never talk about Westerns ever again. And I said, absolutely not. Like that sounds depressing, but I feel like you and he both like to speak at great length about things that you like talking about. And y'all both like giant topics. I might just say, let's pick one movie where y'all have a shared love and affection. Then I'll just step out of the way and and, and (laughs) let y'all talk. I think that would be a ton of fun. And for future episodes, whether it's TV Westerns or Anthony Mann Westerns or John Ford Westerns or Johnson County War, I've had there's still a lot of rocks to look under that we haven't, or William S. Hart, big star from the 20s. So I love and adore doing these episodes. And also I feel like right now so many people are just ignoring Westerns altogether when it comes to film commentary, whether it's YouTube, iTunes, whatever. It's just a, it's a genre that not a lot of people are into, but that's, you know, Fine. Is it not? It isn't a genre for everybody. But for people out there who love westerns, I do feel like we're making episodes just for them. So I always appreciate you making these pitches for these cool topics because I uh, I don't get to listen to podcasts about westerns unless like Tarantino does a big rant about them. So at a bare minimum, I'm just gonna have to make the episodes that I would like to listen to. Well, yeah. I mean, in terms of me and Tony Stella, maybe. I mean, not to retread anything that you've done, but. Maybe we could do um, uh, maybe one of the maybe one of the Leone films or something. I uh, mean, real, li- having uh, y'all do Once Upon a Time in the West could be really cool because I, feel I like think that, that, that that's a movie that deserves I, the deep dive. 
Yeah, because we can get into the influences and all the and the, what he's paying homage to and stuff. So, uh, I think I think that could definitely work. Because his episode about spaghetti westerns was specifically about movies not directed by Sergio Leone, so it's kind of just out there, ripe for the picking. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that could that could definitely be something that 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 would be really fun to do. Um, but uh, if I can just do a quick just kind of uh, wrap up on all these movies in relation to Peckinpah. Sure. Um, um, so I guess, I, I guess, you know, what, what I was saying is that what I, what I said before is uh, that um, I think with a lot of these Westerns, especially the, the, the harsher ones, the meaner ones, the more nihilistic ones, I think that they, they kind of play out as the imagined versions of Peckinpah's movies to people that, never liked Peckinpah, you know, the ones that the Judith Christ or whatever her name is, or the Rex Reeds or, or people even now that think that his movies were just, uh, you know, nihilistic destruction. And, and I think that the, the difference is that, you know, uh, Pe- while Peckinpah's movies could be bleak and harsh and mean, um, uh, they had a, a true, um, love of 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 life a true love of of uh a, a true beauty to them a true poetry um and a, a true love of of, of true uh, of honor and morality and things like that these these things were very precious to peg and paw and uh and so there's there's a there's sort of a a, a rage against the the, the people or, or 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 the parts of society that would destroy those things or even uh, at himself for destroying those things through his own um, demons and so in in Peckinpah's work there is so much of that beauty and poetry and everything and and it's and it's it's really the fragile nature of 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 those things that he that he explores. And so it's the reason I wanted to do this is kind of to put to separate him from his pretenders to put him in sharp contrast. Absolutely. Uh, it separates the men from the boys. Yeah, because like I said these are sort of uh acts of performative nihilism. There's no real uh, with with most of these, there's no real, or at least the darkest ones, there's no real passion there. It's just sort of a slog of just meanness and brutality. But it just seems to just, it just seems more of a, an undeveloped sort of teenage. Well, it's almost like if you love Peckinpah dearly, but you've kind of watched his movies too many times, if you were to watch all of these and then go back and watch the Peckinpah films again, you would see them all with fresh eyes like, ah, yeah, you this, this is yeah. this, this is the real deal. I'm going to watch, you know, Ballad of Cable Hogue and Ride the High Country and Major Dundee and The Wild Bunch and Pack Ambly the Kid and get to appreciate them all over again now that I've seen just how much better they are from in comparison to all the pretenders. You, you see how much he truly cared, you know, uh, just about not even just about the quality of his work, but he just truly cared about certain aspects of life. Uh, yeah, he's he kind of in a lot of ways a, like a big sentimental softy who was always trying to pr- pretend like he was a tough guy. <laughs> exactly, and I think that really, when you put up something uh, like Pat Garrett or uh, Cable Hogue uh, against one of these, you really do see outside of probably Kaoma, um, you really do see the difference. 
Uh, and so that's kind of why I wanted to do this one, just because. Well, how, what was uh, an expression you used earlier? You said that Kiyoma is a movie that's pretending to be a masterpiece, or well, the yeah. figures speech. <laughs> Kiyoma is a movie that's dressed up like a masterpiece, <laughs> uh, and I still and I still do and I still do love it. But yeah, it doesn't it doesn't fully uh, it doesn't uh, it doesn't fully convince. But uh, I see through you. It puts on a good show. It puts Absolutely. On a good show. Well, where can people find you if they want to hunt down some of your art? And, uh, you know, I guess it depends on what, what are people more interested in your drawings of beautiful girls or are they more interested in your rants on Western history? Because it seems like depending upon what people are interested in, they might need to look on different platforms. Yeah. So if you just if you only want um, uh, drawings of beautiful naked women, uh, you can go to my Instagram or my Facebook that they're both under David Lambert Art. Um, my Twitter is also under David Lambert art and, uh, there's plenty of drawings of beautiful naked women there, but then, um, also just a lot of, um, old West, uh, minutia, uh, and, um, things about Westerns. So, you know, long threads about, uh, singer, songwriter, singer, uh, songwriter soundtracks in, uh, revisionist Westerns or I have a long <laughs> I had a long thread about all the revisionist westerns that I could think of that had men in drag. Oh, nice, excellent. <laughs> so that kind of weird minutia, uh, if you're interested in. Um, I should probably, like I said before, split my Twitter accounts into two different things. But uh, as of now, um, uh, naked women and just weird things about westerns. Well, I'm someone who loves naked women and westerns, so your Twitter feed is just right for me. Ah, perfect. Excellent. Well, we hope you have enjoyed this episode. Please remember to leave a rating or a review for the podcast wherever you're listening to it. That's very helpful for the podcast getting discovered. And if you want some more content in the short term, you can always go to my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. Uh, you can talk to me on Twitter at Colbrex. And yeah, just be sure to check out these flicks. And after you're done ripping through all these, if you're a giant Western freak, go back and watch Peckinpah films with fresh new eyes. But we can't thank you for listening to the episode. We really appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs>